Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 264 with my guest Brian Bogosian. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Please go check it out. There's all kinds of good stuff that you can do there. You can fill out a survey anonymously that we may wind up reading on the survey. You can see how other people filled out surveys revealing their deepest, darkest thoughts and things they've done or thought about doing. Excuse me. Um, You can also browse the forum. You can read blogs, guest blogs. You can support the show financially. Uh, So again, uh, go check it out, mentalpod.com. And mentalpod is also the Twitter handle that you can uh, follow me at. If you feel so inclined, I don't want to force you. I don't want to make this a whole Twitter thing. Everybody has, everybody, I am pro-choice when it comes to Twitter. There, I've said it. Um... I want to so go back and rewind that and uh, and record over that, but I'm not going to because, you know what, I'm taking my perfectionism and I'm putting it over to the side and um, <laughs> I put my perfection, perfectionism over to the side, but I'm also going to stack it neatly <clears throat> and perfectly. What is with the phlegm, Ivy? Are you making me? <clears throat> oh, we are off to a bad start. It It is... Whew. This does not bode well. 
You know, I, I was talking with somebody in one of my support groups uh, yesterday. And I can't remember what we were talking about, um, but the subject of, uh, you know, one of the things they encourage you to do in support groups is to reach out, make phone calls, accept phone calls from other people uh, in the support group, and basically keep in touch and make sure you're opening up emotionally. And, you know, a lot of the times I don't want to do that. I just, the last thing I want to do is talk to another human being. And th- it occurred to me that there is just a deliciously underrated moment in society. And that's when you have to call somebody back. And when you do, you get their voicemail. Oh, that is like, it's like walking into uh, just a Caribbean ocean at sunset. <laughs> somebody, somebody feeds you uh ambrosia it's so it's so awesome i wish i didn't enjoy that so much um i i can't recommend this book enough uh i've started reading it uh again in the morning to uh kind of uh go with my meditation it's a book called a new earth by eckhart tolle and the section i was reading today he was talking about all we have is the present moment and it occurred to me that i've just been in this space lately where i am not being present i'm either thinking about the past or i'm thinking about the future and uh and i'm not really being present and um i don't know why i share that with you i guess to um remind you how important it is to just not judge the moment that we're in to just let it be and just say this is the hand that I am dealt at this very moment and the only thing that I have control over is my attitude towards it and any action I may or may not take around it. That sounded kind of good. I might I'm, I might have to write that down. Um, I'm going to read a couple of surveys before we get to Brian's interview. Um, right now my head is spinning just going, man, you, you, uh, this is, this intro is pretty weak. You might want to go back and, uh, just redo this whole thing. And you know what? I'm not going to listen to that voice because even if it is subpar, uh, that's okay. It's okay. So tired of the mean voice in my head. This is a uh, struggle in a sentence filled out by Sophie. And, um, she, uh, <clears throat> she's experienced, um, sexual uh, trauma. And one of the things that she wrote is um, being so poor, uh, I'm so poor that a sliding scale is too much. Uh, Who gets this? No one in my life. Sick of hearing if there's a will, there's a way. What do I choose? Feed my cat or therapy with my lousy five bucks? And the thing that I want to suggest to you, Sophie, is the Rape and Incest National Network. Um, Try contacting them because I have the feeling that they may be able to hook you up with um, some type of trauma therapy that won't cost you anything. I could be wrong, but I just wanted to put that out there for you. Hopefully, Hopefully you're listening to this episode. This is, you know, there's also a good chance you listen to the first two minutes and you... And the mean part of my brain is right, and you gave up on the podcast and abandoned me. You know what? Fuck you, Sophie. I don't need you. This is um, <sighs> now my brain is spinning. Going, what if Sophie hears that and she thinks that you were serious when you told her to fuck off? She's in a bad place. Oh my God. 
I am so tired of my brain being rush hour traffic to the next. <clears throat> you know why I'm, I'm having that in my throat? I just ate, but my wife got some, uh, some coffee cake and I, I didn't even use utensil, not, not even to cut it. I, I tore the plastic off of it and I just started gouging out the middle of it because that's where it's the most of the apples and the moist part of it was. And, uh, and my wife was just standing there laughing, watching me just destroy this thing, just, just warming my fingers into the, into the center of it. And at, at one point with like a mouthful of cake, I just looked at her and I said, I'm fingering a dessert. All right. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Kay. <clears throat> and a snapshot from her life, she writes, I was on my knees in a friend's house trying to vomit for the eighth time while pretending to shower, and nothing was fucking coming up after 25 minutes. I am 16 years old. Um, this, this was previously. She's in her 20s now. Uh, I'm 16 years old. I lost my gag reflexes and had to improvise. It was the first time that I took something that wasn't my own and shoved it so far down my throat that I felt like I was choking myself. Like, fuck it. Who cares? You fat slut. Those were the thoughts in my head. Then the blissful feeling of emptying my stomach with the broken blood vessels completely noticeable on my face. It felt so good. I felt relieved, euphoric, and completely fucked all in the in the time it took to get the disgusting food out of my body. Thank you for that, Kay. This is, and I'm hoping that you're uh, you're doing better than you were when you were uh, 16. Um, this was filled out by a woman who calls herself <laughs> unsuccessful milkshake entrepreneur uh, about her anxiety, uh, which is generalized anxiety. She writes, forever momentarily losing your wallet at the checkout stand. That is a great one. About her paranoia, feeling like an in, feeling like an invitation from anyone is an invent, invitation to get murdered. I'm going to blame that stumbling on the cake. Uh, snapshot from her life, barricading the door, hiding in the closet, phone set to call 911. If my roommates are going to kill me tonight, they're going to have to put some fucking effort into it. Thank you for that. This is filled out by Kristen, who writes about her anxiety. It's like life's a big party and I'm crashing it, just waiting for someone to catch me and tell me in front of everyone that I wasn't invited. She also struggles with maladaptive daydreaming disorder. Um, and she writes, and I'm not really sure what that is. She writes, the movie playing in my head is way better than anything life has to offer. I'd like to learn more about that. Well, Paul, you could Google it. Well, that would involve me putting down the cake. Um, this is filled out by crying into my chips. <clears throat> They're uh, gender fluid. And they write about their bulimia. The only time I feel alive is when I'm completely empty inside. Um, snapshot from their life. When I restrict, I feel high. I feel powerful and desirable in ways that drugs can't seem to replicate. I love the dreamlike euphoria that starvation brings, even if I know that my body is anesthetizing itself to survive. It never lasts, and when it fades, I feel ashamed for how I have used my vanity to escape feeling hollow and empty inside. Thank you for that. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Bugbear. About his love addiction, he writes, My heart is beating out of my chest and I want it to stop. 
about his OCD. I'm not saying your way is wrong, just that my way is right. That's a great one. But his anger issues, I tried to kill someone with a tire iron, and I'm not sorry. Um, he writes, prison has made me into something subhuman. Thank you for sharing that, Bugbear. And then this is uh, from a woman who calls herself too blessed to be sad. And about her bulimia, she writes, eat because it feels good, weigh myself, pick a better weight, throw up until I get there. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone. Why hypervigilance I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house. And you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. <laughs> I'm here with my buddy, Brian Bogosian, who I've known for probably seven years. How long have you been sober? Six and a half. Six and a half years. Yeah. Oh, I remember your fucking sad ass rolling in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Crack yeah. cocaine still coursing through your veins. Wonderful stuff. Oh, you were so sad. I was. You were so sad, dude. And you... I'm slightly happier now. <laughs> That's an understatement. Um, you're somebody... Uh, who uh i just light up when when you walk in the room um i i brian and i sit literally three feet across from each other every thursday night and have been for the last six and a half pretty much years uh although we may have had different uh positions uh and gotten knocked out of our yeah gotten knocked out of our but for the yeah. last two years, we've been uh, consistently, yeah, consistently sit, and uh, and there's always a little bit of antics that are going on. Always, us. always some kind of antics. Uh, usually, you assuring me that you are thinking about me. I like to let you know that right when I get in there because I know you're worried about that. So I like to walk right in, and I just want you to know that I'm thinking about you. I want to know that everybody is considering me as much as I'm considering myself. Well, you know, you're not much, but you're all you think about. That's right. <laughs> uh, so uh, I know large chunks of of your story um but i thought it would be it would be nice to record and just uh you know what i'm going to turn your volume up just a tad give me a give me a level talk uh hello test one two test test am i good yeah that's better closer yep yeah okay that's good perfect um so you were born here and how old are you again uh i'm 38 years old okay um, and I got sober when I was, uh, about 32 and a half, somewhere around there. And, uh, I was, uh, I was born a pretty little Jewish girl from the Valley <laughs> and, uh, no, um, I was, uh, born at Valley press over here and, um, I come from two pretty good people, uh, on the whole. 
my father was a uh, Turkish Armenian immigrant who came to this country when he was 17 years old um, with $75 in his pocket. And what, Korea, year, what year was he born? Oh, God, 74. He just died uh, 66, 50-something or other. So his parents experienced the genocide? Um, actually, oddly enough, what I learned, my dad didn't talk about his past. Um, I don't know a lot about my father's family. Um, I learned from, uh, my dad's in the jewelry business and, um, he, um, there's some people in downtown LA, some diamond setters that knew my dad from the old country since they were kids. And I actually learned more about my family from them than I did from my own Isn't father. That a funny thing, uh, a lot, especially with a lot of dads, they just don't, I didn't even know my dad was in the air force until like two years before he died. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I heard, uh, um, somebody else that you had had on the, on the podcast, um, that we know. Um, Randy, mm-hmm. I don't know if I can, yeah, yeah, yeah Randy okay. Olea, yeah, Randy yeah. Olea, yeah, and him talking about how his dad didn't really, you know, he didn't really know anything about that, about his dad and where he came from and all that, and it's interesting. I've listened to your podcast and um, I've had a lot of realizations about things that I kind of knew, but I think hearing some of the other people and other guests and some of the other guys that we know. Um, that I know that you've had on the show just kind of helped me validate some things that like, it's, yeah, it's okay to think that thought or those feelings that are maybe not the most desirable thing to think about your mom or your dad. And not to say that, you know, I've thought I've heard things that have made me think they're bad people, but you know, I mean, there's stuff, you know, yeah, there's stuff. It, it, and I like, I like to say <sighs> that it's the reason that we examine that childhood stuff isn't to isn't to punish uh, our parents. It, it's to give weight to what happened to us, so we can stop beating ourselves. Up yeah. So we can so we can start uh, to heal. Cl- clarity, clarity's good. Yeah, yeah. And, and and it helps, I think, for me especially to be able to observe um, those behaviors in myself and understand, especially when I'm I have re- relationships with you know anybody, any kind of person or any interpersonal relationship I might have that, you know, if there's a certain way that a certain person behaves, it kind of touches on something. So, you know, helps you to be a little more clued into why you're getting triggered. Yeah. If you're getting upset or you're getting happy or you're getting horny or yeah. <laughs> whatever the hell it is. <laughs> yeah. So what are the, what are the things that have uh, triggered some thoughts, uh, things that, that oh, you've boy. gotten some more clarity on? Um, Well, just, you know, like different, I mean, there were different things that were just said from different podcasts. You know, I definitely identified with, uh, with, um, you know, what Randy had talked about his dad and, um, Jamie about when he was a young, when he was younger and, you know, um, my, um, my mom, I think, you know, I, I agree with, you know, it's been said on here before, but you know, my parents, I think did the best that they knew how to do. You know, I don't think that they were dealt the best hand either. And, um, and their generation was not taught tools. I think our generation, they're, they're more available. They're still, I don't think taught in a, in a way that we teach kids math or English and we should. Right. <laughs> but go right. ahead. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, yeah. So it was that old, uh, that, um, you know, they came from that time, you know, where things were just weren't, you know, kids were seen and not heard. And, um, you know, my mother is, uh, a very wonderful, 
little neurotic Jewish woman. And, uh, you know, my, my parents split when I was pretty young. Uh, they, you know, my dad was an alcoholic. Uh, my dad died about in April. It'll be, uh, about two years. And, uh, he was 64. He had a heart attack and died. And he was about 26 years sober when he died. So was your dad a, a dry drunk or did he ever go to support groups? Um, yeah, he was involved in some support groups and, um, uh, he went to rehab mm-hmm. and, um, after he got out of rehab, um, he was very involved in a support group with, um, a sponsor that, um, dragged him, um, to support groups mm-hmm. and was very instrumental in that. And then eventually the sponsor relapsed. And I think when that happened, he kind of just, you know, he, he, he had it under control, you know, he, mm, I got it from know, here. I don't want yeah, to find I'm good. somebody else to help me. Yeah, I'm good. I, That's, I have you ever heard, uh, what's his name's, uh, story or read his book? Um, Warren Zevon. No, uh, there's a book, uh, about him that, that's basically one of the one of the things that happened with him, and I think a lot of people maybe they're ready to relapse, and then that's a perfect excuse um, for them. But it just sounds like your dad didn't relapse; he just was like he I, didn't. I, I mean, uh, he um, did what I think uh, happens to a lot of people um, with should I say the ism mm-hmm. um, and um, isn't meaning you know alcoholism, uh, addiction, correct shopping, whatever you're. Yeah, ism is. I, 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 you know, we see it manifest in other areas of life with different uh, addictions. You know, he was, he definitely had a food addiction and he had a gambling addiction. And, um, you know, his gambling was a lot of football gambling and uh, high stakes or. Um, you know, I mean, it depends on what's your definition of high stakes. I mean, there's, you know, there was, you know, six, seven games on a Sunday. My dad would have, you know, a hundred to 500 on each one. And then he'd parlay up to 500 to a thousand dollars on each one. That seems pretty serious. It was, I mean, you guys certainly had money. He was a successful jeweler, but, yeah. um, that seems. Yeah. He, he, he was, but you know, and then like in all situations like that or with with these types of you know um i don't know they want to call it a disease nowadays or whatever but you know it it progressed for him and you know it was the gambling and it was vegas and then it turned into the stock market and that had a real significant impact on our business yeah boy you you think the house fucks you in vegas try the stock market (laughs) yeah Yeah. Uh, and you're never playing with the house's money (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're always playing with your own money on the stock oh, market. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and actually when he died, he left us with, you know, the remnants of some of that. So, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, it, I, I definitely had, saw progression in, had, in him. Had he leveraged some of the jewelry business to fund his addiction? Uh, he, w- he was doing, uh, um, um, oh, God, I can't think of the word when they. Uh, when you short he, something? He wasn't leveraging the business, but he was, uh, I forget what the term is and, and I'm not a stock market guy, but, uh, anyways, he was, he was, he was upping the stakes. He was upping the stakes for sure. And it was significant and he would, you know, he would take, he would have, we would have to write checks that were large to cover things and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, he would see money come in and he would tell the bookkeeper, you write me a check to, you know, so-and-so who was the, 
you know, the, uh, the broker. I got you. And, uh, um, what did you think when you first started seeing this? What did, what did, did certain feelings, uh, come up for you around this? It wasn't until I got sober and started to realize, learn about, um, um, addiction and so forth and start to realize, um, that what was going on with him was a manifestation of his alcoholism, which is the same, you know, I'm of the belief that the alcoholism has a lot more to do with the mental and the emotional and spiritual component than it does than the liquor that you're actually drinking. Absolutely. It's the discomfort in one's own skin that, yeah. that is driving the ship. Yeah. And steering, steering. Yeah. <laughs> Steering the car, <laughs> driving the boat, yeah, yeah, whatever. Picking up the phone to call yeah. the stockbroker, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, so that that I, I started to see that, and you know, it was my dad was a cocaine addict, and um, for a long time, and I remember one time walking into his office, and he had his face probably about three inches from the screen, watching the live feed. So my dad's day would consist of the live feed of the stock market on one computer screen. Bloomberg on the television and, um, you know, on the phone with the stockbroker. And I remember, you know, he's like, <laughs> you know, he's like three inches from the screen and he's, he's quivering. Like, you know, every time the numbers go up, it's like, he's taking a hit and, you know, and it was so clear to me. I'm like, wow like you know you're, put you, the straw down it was almost like you know a crack it had been on a run for three days where you're like okay it's time to put the pipe down you know the dealer is even telling you to stop calling you know do you know how much money i would pay to see footage of you walk in behind him with an air horn <laughs> <laughs> it would have given him the heart attack that ended up killing him <laughs> That's for sure. You would have you saved your business money. I would have. I, I should have. I been the should. most valuable air horn. I should have talked about this years ago with you. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is you weren't that important to me. Then. <laughs> so you're much more important to me now. And I share it with you. So now I'm here. So that's wonderful. What did you think and feel when you walked in and you, and you saw just what an adrenaline junkie your dad was? It was... Um, it was eye-opening, you know. That's when I realized, you know. Uh, and were you smoking crack during this time, or this is no, after no, you got sober? this is after I got sober. Okay. And um, it just made me realize how um, he wasn't, um, you know, he wasn't in the practice of recovering anymore, you know. Um, he wasn't making things better. Um, he wasn't, there was no effort on his part to become, to grow spiritually. I think that's the, the big component I think is mm -hmm. what I'm more in fear of anything is not necessarily a drink or a drug is to stop growing spiritually. And for people out there that don't, that aren't familiar with addiction, it, one of the biggest casualties of untreated addiction is perspective. And, um, the fears grow, the anger grows, the resentment grows. And that's one of the reasons why people go to support groups a couple of times a week and stay in touch with other addicts is so that you can keep your perspective in check. Because if you don't, then the fear starts to build up and then you need some type of something to, to, to numb out. And your, your dad, it sounds like was just, that was just a classic case of, uh, I think also too, we, we, um, 
It was told to me that um, the brain that I walked into support group with was the same brain um, the day before I got sober was a brain that was saying, hey, pick up that crack pipe, smoke some crack, things will be great. You'll be good. You know, so you're operating with that brain and, you know, you don't get to where you, you don't get there um, because you made one wrong decision. Right. <laughs> you know, that was that was that was uh, a lot of committed bad decisions for many, many years in a row. And um, I think that same brain still kind of operates, but we're able to change the perspective on what the right thing and the wrong thing is. Yeah. So, um yeah, he, uh, um, you know, he was an amazing, the, the one thing I'll say about my dad is my father was an amazing, amazing man. He, uh, he had a, left a very huge, uh, footprint in the jewelry industry and revolutionized a part of the jewelry business. Um, really there, what, what part? Um, well, engagement rings, we, mm -hmm. um, we, um, created a designer line of engagement rings and we decided to. Um, market it towards the, um, to, to the wedding world, as opposed to in the past where jewelers, you just walked in and you, you bought what they had and they had a wedding ring and, you know, weddings were marketing, you know, brand name dresses and brand name, you know, shoes. And, you know, they had cakes and the, you know, there was, there was some branding involved and we mm -hmm. kind of got in and, and jumped on that. And there've been a lot of engagement companies that have kind of followed that model. And we make, you know, we've, we've stuck to, we've always been a very small handmade, you know, like there's some components that have just kept us sustained us of who mm -hmm. we are. And also to the style in which my dad created his designs. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, all that being said, um, he, you know, if you're in the industry, you know, the name and that's something that, you know, I work still running that company and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not always been the best experience. Um, it's been rough, but, um, being, I, being in the business running, yeah, running your family business, running the family right. business. Now my, um, my stepmom owns the business. My brother works with me and, you know, working in any family business can be difficult. And, um, <clears throat> so, you get along with your stepmom? Um, you know, I, 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 it depends on the day. Mm. <laughs> it depends, okay. on, depends on the day. Uh, she has good days. She has bad days. I have good days. I have bad days. Um, kind of like with anybody. Um, um, I think she's a good person. Um, she, the, the disease of addiction runs deep in my family. Um, I have a younger brother who's 25 years old who's a heroin addict and she is, um, if you, if there was a way to describe like she's, she's like an active crackhead, but in her, um, um, you know, her disease is my brother. Her so she's sickness, codependent, completely codependent. I That's see. the word I'm looking for. Um, and it can be major, every bit as destructive as yeah. somebody who is, she's a major yeah. enabler, yeah. major enabler. And, um, and it's like, we're, it's like, it's like, you know, somebody who's an active alcoholic, you know, it's the same, it's the same behavior. And, um, so it can, you know, and I have, I have a place to go where I can learn to deal with, you know, the things that come up with life. Um, not everybody has that. And, um, 
Meaning your support groups. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I have to remember that. That's part of what they tell us in the support groups is, you know, you have a solution. You have a place to find a solution. And um, she doesn't, you know. She doesn't. A lot of people don't. And, uh, you know, what what I get from that, I wish I could bottle and sell. And I wish I could give it to people because it's beautiful and wonderful and amazing. And it's the best thing that's ever happened to me, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like, uh, seeing color for the first time and everybody's like, no, I'm good. I like black and white. And you're just like, you don't understand what you're missing. You know, there's a lot of those videos that I've seen on YouTube or not on YouTube, but on Facebook where they've given the people that are deaf hearing devices and they turn them on and they're able to hear for the very first time. Oh really? Yeah. And they, and you see them like, okay, it's on now and their eyes light up and they look and they're like almost startled. And nine times out of 10, they immediately just start to cry and they're just overwhelmed with emotion. And it's like, it's, that's how it is. You know, it's like that, you know, it doesn't happen with the flip of a switch. Like it, Mm -hmm. you know, it does, you know, with the device like that, but, um, that's that's what you get, and um, I don't know. It's uh, it's good stuff, but you know. So she doesn't she doesn't uh, she doesn't have that, and it just makes things difficult. Yeah. And, uh, so give me some snapshots from from childhood. Oh boy. Um, well, I was my since my parents divorced my my okay. So my mother left my father. Um, because she found me in the closet, um, playing with a three gram vial of cocaine when I was five years old and she walked into the closet and there's little (laughs) Brian sitting on the floor and going into my dad's pockets. And I had, you know, pulled out this brown glass vial and I had powder all over me and she took one look at me and she grabbed me and walked out the door and that was the end of it, you know? And she that you know my dad had been a partier and a drinker and a gambler and all that had you know and she kind of saw that and that was the last straw and um so my mom raised me from the time i was five Mm -hmm. and um you know she provided all the things that were necessary i had more than i needed um i was spoiled you know i was um i was given all the things all the things, all the things, all Every, the material, stuff. all the things were there. Everything you could possibly want. Um, but she was busy, you know, she was busy. She was busy, uh, trying to make a living, trying to have a life. And I was raised by the housekeeper and I was a latchkey kid. And I remember, you know, walking home from, you know, Valley Vista and Ventura to Dixie Canyon elementary where I went to school. And, you know, I'm in like third or fourth grade and I'm walking down the street by myself, you know, and, uh, you know, my mom would work all day and then she would go out and she would date and she dated a lot and she had business dinners and functions and, you know, um, and I was home a lot and I was by myself a lot. And there wasn't a lot of that. And my dad was busy, you know, getting high and making jewelry. 
And that's really what he was doing. He would stay up all night doing cocaine and making jewelry. And if I wanted to see him, I had to figure a way to go to him. I wasn't getting picked up. I wasn't, none of that was happening. So there was, um, there was a lot of loneliness and, um, there was a lot of abandonment and, um, you know, like I said, they did the best that they could, but they were just busy doing what they, what they were doing, you know? And, um, it left me, you know, ultimately figuring ways to entertain myself. And for some reason I always, it was always something stupid or something <laughs> I would get in trouble with or, you know, oddly enough, why, why is it, why is it that it was always something that I wasn't supposed to be doing? Mm-hmm. Why could I have been finding it's the fun as shit, filling time with the things that you're supposed to do? No, you know, um, I don't know. I guess I was just always drawn to that kind of stuff. I mean, when I was five or six or seven, somewhere in there, I remember being at Beeman Park and, uh, you know, I'm taking a leak at the urinal and this biker walks in and he's probably, he could have been seven foot tall. I don't know. He looked huge and he had braided long hair. You know, he had a biker's vest on, he was covered in tattoos and he kind of took one look over at me and glanced at me and gave a smirk. And I thought he was the scariest and coolest and most awesome thing that I'd ever seen in my life, you know? And I was, that's what I was attracted to, you know? I don't know why. So hence, hence all the tattoos today. Hence all the tattoos and, uh, you know, the music and the motorcycles and the whole nine yards, you know? Uh, Brian is also a drummer. Drummer, yeah. Drummer and ride Harleys and all that kind of fun stuff. So, and he's built, built like a, uh, uh, I don't know what would you football player. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm surprised you haven't called me by my nickname. That yeah, you, yeah. Cinderblock is his nickname <laughs> around the uh, our support group, <laughs> among uh, many other names. Um, <laughs> but that's the one that stuck with me. So now I call him Cinder. You always call me Cinderblock. Yeah. Um. So give me some other snapshots. What was the one that, that you started telling me about your dad when you were 16? It was for your birthday or something? With uh, with the drums or? No. Well, no, there was. Okay. So so I remember, you know, there I was just exposed to some really unhealthy stuff, you know. Like I, I remember when I would get to go to my dad's, um, he had this house on Beverly Glen that was just his party house. And uh, I'm... You know, I'm in the bedroom, you know, and they're putting on Cheech and Chong and I'm like seven or eight. And, you know, I open the door to look out and see what's going on. And there's, you know, naked women and, you know, marble blocks with like massive amounts of white powder on them. And there's just, you know, 80s party going on, you know, and I'm in the spare bedroom watching Cheech and Chong because that's (laughs) appropriate entertainment for, you know, the seven, eight, nine year old, you know, clearly. And, um, I remember one, uh, so snapshot, I remember one morning, um, being downstairs and, you know, you know, when you're a little kid, you wake up early to watch cartoons, you know? And, uh, I was bored, you know? And, uh, there were this, there was this little rectangular package, orange package, and there were these little thin weight little papers in there. And somehow in, intuitively I knew that there was a gummy, 
you know, edge on it. And so I started licking these things together and I made this like elongated sheet of paper and, and I'm drawing on it and making, you know, doodling or whatever. And, you know, I'm looking up at my dad and my dad's standing there and it's like six o'clock in the morning and he's staying there in a t-shirt and his underwear and he's cooking some steak and eggs, you know, and, uh, you know, I've got some matchbox cars and we're playing matchbox cars on, you know, and, you know, he was, he was just coming down from a night of partying, you know, and, um, I think it was watching his kid draw on rolling papers. I, I did, he, did he notice that you were doing that? No clue. Okay. Yeah, no clue. And I didn't know what they were until, you know, snap forward to 14 years old when someone says, let's roll a joint and they pull out these orange papers that have the gummy shit on it. And all of a sudden, oh, <laughs> that's what those were for. I got it. It's clear. Got it. Got it. Pop was smoking dope. Got it. Good stuff. And I was playing with zigzags. All right. So, um, with the, we, uh, my dad had a, a friend of his that had a boat, had a big yacht. And, uh, we decided, I guess, you know, um, probably high in a moment's notice, let's go on the yacht, you know? So I think it was a Sunday and, and you were how old at this point? Must've been seven, eight, nine, somewhere in there. Okay. Um, and, uh, so we get on the boat and, you know, the drinks they're drinking and, you know, I see the, the cocaine on the little, you know, tile, marble tile thing on the, in the, in the little galley area. And next thing you know, the, the tops come off and there's these, you know, big breasted women and they're on this boat and they think it's hilarious to grab the kid by the ears and bury my face in their breasts and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I remember just being so scared and embarrassed. And I thought like I was going to get in trouble, you know, because my mom was like, you know, the, you know, was the authority figure. And, and your dad was okay with all of this happening? Oh, it was, you know, I mean, you know, when my brother was, my younger brother was in his, you know, early twenties, he took him to Marbella to go to a whorehouse, you know, I mean, that's, <laughs> that was my dad, you know. Um, it's good. so fucked up, dude. That is so fucked up. I am. I mean, imagine if the sexes were reversed, and yeah, you would have been a little girl. Could you imagine? Yeah. Um, and yet, our society mm-hmm. says that's not as bad. That's not as. That's not as. Damaging. Well, you know, I mean, for him, it's oh, it's cute. It's funny, you know. It's cute and it's funny. Um, I didn't realize how much that had an effect on me. No clue. Um, and not in some like, what I realized is that with intimacy in relationships, you know, fast forward to four and a half to five years of sobriety before any of that starts to, you know, not like got sober and all of a sudden I'm learning, you know, I mean, you know, I thought intimacy started in the bedroom and ended in the bedroom. I had no clue, you know, and I thought the more intense and the more graphic and, you know, the more rubber toys that were involved, the deeper was the intimacy. (laughs) (laughs) That was, I mean, we're getting intimate now, you know, but, um, you know, I'm, I've just started to learn the last couple of relationships that, um, it has a lot more to do with what happens outside the bedroom, especially for women, um, and for a healthy man, 
You know, um, I, you know, I go to those support groups with, uh, you know, that one that we go to is men only. Mm -hmm. And the reason I like to go to men only is because I feel comfortable and safe there. And also because I want to learn from other, um, from other men. I want to learn from other men how to be, how to be a man. And uh, that room raised me. I think it raised both of us without a doubt. Without a doubt. There's so many father and, figures for both of us in that. Well, and that you know, room. you have guys that were father figures to you and you, you are one of those guys for me. Oh, wow. I'd never thought about that. Yeah, I know. I know. I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to give you too much. Well, thank I mean, you, buddy. That, that's so, uh, yeah, man. I mean, that's so touching without a doubt, you know, without a doubt. Um, hearing you talk about, you know, things with your, you know, with your mom and, and experiences that you had and feelings and things like that, just, you know, God, I can identify, you know, I can identify and then I can be comfortable and I can do the same thing. And, I and then can you talk can talk about, about it. it. Yeah. Uh, that's the biggest hurdle. Is how do I talk about this? How do I, how do I even begin <clears throat> to make sense of it to talk about it? Yeah. Just to put the words together is so, it's just so much easier to numb, to numb ourselves than to try to put together this jigsaw puzzle that is crazy. I, uh, do me a favor, turn around and close the door. I think we got, uh, we got visitors. That's the ghost of your dad with some hookers. <laughs> <laughs> He's looking down on me right now. I could just feel it. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, um, T talk some more about, uh, intimacy, unless there was another thought that you. Your, um, your struggle, uh, to, yeah, no, to be I mean, intimate. What are some of the hurdles? Those, those, those that, yeah, the intimacy, intimacy stuff. I mean, you know, I remember, I remember there was a, like a classic picture from the forties or fifties that my dad had of two topless women in the bathroom. And I remember looking at those when I was a little kid and just being like enamored by breasts you know, um, my last two girlfriends were very voluptuous, you know, breast wise, you know, I don't know if that has a connection, but, um, you know, um, but yeah, just, just images, seeing these images and, and, um, whether they've, you know, I think, uh, ultimately they must've had a negative impact because I kind of, you know, associated that with neg with intimacy and, a way that I'm learning today is not, you know, I don't know if maybe intimacy when you're 25 is different than when you're 45, you know, obviously it is, but, um, I don't know. I think, uh, it definitely, you know, seeing, seeing naked women in a hustler magazine laying around in, at my dad's house, you know, those things, you know, those images, that was the first images I had of, you know, women and sex. And it was all. Object. How can that not uh, distort your your view of what women are, especially when you have a mom who's not really present? Not only not really present, but as things went on, just completely, completely chasing after men. You know, I mean, when she remarried, when I was, I don't know, what was a fifth grade and she remarried this extremely wealthy man and we had to relocate. And I was spent one year in Upland and, um, cause that's where his business was. And then the second year, you know, I was being talked into how wonderful boarding school was and what kind of a great experience that would be for me. And, you know, I'm next thing, you know, I'm in New Hampshire at a boarding school, you know, because he didn't want to have kids in the house, 
you know. And, uh, and I think, I think. And and was your opinion asked on, would you like to go to boarding school? No, it was more kind of like, oh, wow, look at this and look how wonderful this would be. And I was just like, okay, yeah, you know, what the hell do I know? You know, it didn't, I didn't realize, you know. You know, what do I, I, I wasn't explained about loneliness. I wasn't, you know, nobody said, you know, there, there might be a time that you feel lonely. There might be a time that you feel homesick and there might be times that you want to come home and you just can't. And, you know, I, I learned all that being there, you know, I learned that I learned about those things being there. You know, I remember the second year I was there, um, you know, they're sending me to a therapist cause I'm struggling. You know, struggling emotionally or with school. Yeah. Emotionally, I wanted to go home, you know, and what was the school's response to bring in somebody to calm me down so that I could stay and they could keep the the meal ticket. You know, I mean, you know, I look back on it now and I think, man, that's kind of, kind of fucked up, you know, it's kind of fucked up, but you know, like I said, she was doing the best that she could, you know, she thought she was providing the best possible experience for her kid. You know, she thought that, you know, having those, you know, pre-prep Ivy league schools would, you know, um, would have some kind of positive, you know, you know, I'd get into some school or we get whatever. I mean, you know, she didn't realize I was going to pick up drugs (laughs) and it was all down the drain, but you know, um, you know, I mean, it was, it was, you know, I, I remember, I rem- I always tell the story, you know, uh, I woke up one morning and I look out the window and, you know, there was the, f- the first time I had ever saw snow and I had no clue what had happened. And I'm looking out the window and everything's covered white. And I'm looking out the window with this shock and paranoia and like fear, like what had happened? Like had the aliens come down and sprayed the ground? Like, How did you no not? Clu- I had no clue. You've never seen snow, snow in I'd movies? I'd never seen. Yeah, but I just like, I had never been in it. Okay. And I'd never like experienced like you wake up, you go to bed one night yeah. and you wake up and the ground's covered with snow, you know, and I'm looking out the window and I'm like shitting bricks. And next thing you know, my roommate wakes up and he goes, oh, it snowed last night. And I'm like, yeah, snow. <laughs> That's the ticket. I know about snow. Oh yeah. Look at God. the snow. How nice is the snow? I had no clue. What do I know from snow? I'm you know from California. It doesn't get below seventy degrees here. You know? Oh so there was it was an experience. You How know, many years were, did you go? I was in New Hampshire for two years and then I was in um a military school for a year in Carlsbad, which was a little bit better. Um you would think the military not good, but actually it was good and the structure and all that kind of stuff that, you know, those experiences definitely, you know, I learned things. I learned about manners and I learned about, you know, taking care of myself because, you know, I pretty much was from a very early age. I learned how to do my own laundry and make my own bed and what hospital corners are and how to tie a tie and, you know, a lot of good, valuable life skills. I really did. And one of the best things that I got exposed to during that time was drums. Um, there was a drum set in the bottom of this, uh, there was a drum set. My cousin played the drums and God, what a story I could tell you about that guy. Um, he had a drum set when I went to go visit them in Oregon, um, right around seven, eight, nine, somewhere around there. And, um, I went downstairs into the basement where the drums were and I heard him. I saw this double bass monster Ludwig drum set with all these cymbals. And I'm just like, Whoa, this is cool. Very few things as cool to a kid as a big set of drums monster my cousin sat down and he played heavy and hard and he just tore it up you know and uh, i was just like you must have got chicken skin huh? oh god i was like i could not even believe it i couldn't even believe that that existed 
you know? And so he ended up buying me a practice pad and a pair of sticks. And that was like my first experience with drums. And then first drum set that I really got to play on was at this boarding school in the bottom of this basement of this church. And, you know, we went to school six days a week. So on Sunday was the only day that we had, and I would go under this church and on Saturday nights, um, I would go in there and the chaplain was cool. It was always open and I would go in there and sometimes the chaplain would open the door and he'd look at me and smile and he'd nod his head and I'd just be in there banging away and banging away and banging away. You know, um, I've always done a lot of things alone. You know, there's always been a lot of alone, you know, the disease of addiction is a very lonely disease, you know, and as I look back, I see that, you know, that was, there's something about, you know, I mean, when I was five, my mother handed me a Flintstone and she said, Flintstone's vitamin. She said, this is good for you. And she walked out of the room and I started eating them by the handful, you know, I mean, where really like, come on, where does that come from? You know what I'm saying? Like, this is good for you. I might as well take a hundred of them. You know what I'm saying? I'm like five, you know? So you know, is it, I don't, you know, I don't think I was born with it, but I think there were definitely some factors that have pushed me in that direction for, you know, for the disease of addiction. I think that's, that's been, you know, I've been going that way since day one. And, um, and then the outside factors just didn't help, you know, but, uh, so, um, yeah, there was. You uh, found your love of drums. Found my love of drums, and so the boarding schools ended. Um, she got divorced, and at that during that time, she had bought a house in Palm Springs, and so we kind of ended up in Palm Springs, Palm Desert, actually. And uh, I went to public high school at Palm Desert High School, and the bad kid in the country club where I lived. Um, yeah, it was rough. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it was ridiculous. When she was married to this guy, there were ski houses and limos and, you know, it was just, it was ridiculous. So, you know, we end up at this, I end up in this country club and, uh, there's this one kid in the country club who's kind of, you know, he's the, he's the bad kid in school, you know, and cause he doesn't wear an ascot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, this is public school now. Okay. So we're not, we don't, we don't have no no more ascots and uniforms, but I kept all that shit, you know, for a long time. But, um, I remember coming home on the bus and I'm looking in the back seat and he's got this bag with these three little green footballs, you know, these tiny little green buds. And, uh, I was like, Oh yeah, that's cool. You know, that's pot. I don't know, but it's, it's, how did I know? What did I know? I don't know, but I knew. And, uh, you know, we went back behind the tennis courts and, uh, you know, he had a, pipe that he rolled up out of tinfoil and uh we took a couple hits and uh i was scared and thought i was going to get busted and um i got queasy and sick and a little high and i could not wait to do it again yeah yeah i all from that first hit to when i got sober i'm not kidding you my life was in the constant pursuit of that next hit. I don't know how the hell that happened. It was one hit. It was, I I mean, and I'm not kidding you. I was, I was the kind, I was the kind of alcoholic and drug addict that I didn't miss. You know, um, I didn't miss. I got loaded every day, 
you know, whether I had to scrape resin out of a pipe or, you know, steal some beer, I, I caught a buzz every day, every day, whether I was sick, I, there were times I was in the hospital, it didn't matter, you know, but from that first hit, I could not like that, you know, getting and using and finding ways and means to get more. I mean, that was just born right then from one hit. It was crazy. <clears throat> but, um, you know, so, um, I think it was, I was 13 or 14, um, my birthday from 13 to 14 before my freshman year. Um, I told my dad I wanted a drum set and, uh, he said, ask your mother. So I called my mother and I said, Hey mom, I said, dad bought me a drum set. And she said, he did. And I said, yeah. And she goes, Oh, a vey. <laughs> and then I hung up the phone with her and I said, mom said, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> In case yeah. there's any question as whether or not you are an addict. <laughs> I'm telling you, from the first hit, it was go. But, um, yeah, so I got the drum set, and I started teaching myself how to play drums. And within, like, six months, I was uh, playing in a band with guys that were in their, like, late 20s and early 30s. What? Yeah. I was a metalhead. And I just, for some reason, I picked it up quick. Who were your favorite bands? Oh, God. Favorite bands. Um, or favorite drummers. Yeah, I, Bonham. Love Bonham. Oh, yeah. Love Keith Moon. Ginger Baker. Ginger Baker, Buddy Rich, um, Pert, um, Dave Grawl. Dave Grawl. He's, he's amazing. He's you know who I think is musician. super underrated and I think maybe has the best feel of any drummer is Charlie Watts. Charlie Watts? Yeah. Great drummer. Solid. Great drummer. And he just, uh, he just does it. He does it for me. Definitely nothing flashy. Nothing flashy. Definitely but nothing flashy. But it's just always the right. I mean, they've been playing for what, 50, 60 years? Yeah. It's got to be doing something right. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Um, love the Beatles. Love Ringo. Um, and there was, uh, there were some, you know, some serious metal drummers, you know, like, um, the drummer from Megadeth, Nick Menza, that guy had a huge impact. Huge impact. Lars he, Ulrich, great drummer. Okay. No. no. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> he was great, man. He was great for so long. And then, I don't know, he just, he's, you know, it just, mm, just no. disappointing. Okay. Disappointing. Like, I wanted to. I didn't really listen to them much after the Black Album, but I just remember the drums. There it is there. It all ended the drums, there. And I guess part of that's Bob Rock, who produced it and got the most amazing drum sound in the history of rock and roll. W without a doubt. I mean, I think they spent like a million dollars, they said, on the drum tracks or and whatever. like three days just to get the drum sound, or a week just to get oh, the microphones was, was, placed was, right. Yeah, it was ridiculous. They spent a lot of time. but And the drums sounded great, but what he played was just, you know, you got to remember, he came from the album before that whereas you know double bass this and all kind you know and it's yeah. like so but anyways I, I you know i taught myself how to play and i and I, I did a lot of you know i borrowed a bass drum from that drum set that my cousin had um because he was only a five you know he was an acdc guy you know so he was you don't need a double bass drum to play yeah AC there's another drummer you know what i'm saying that's just you know it's uh you know, every drummer that they've had was like that, you know, and uh, so he didn't need the extra bass drum. So I, you know, propped that puppy up there and, you know, and I'm playing double bass and, you know, death metal was really big, like Florida death metal and Swedish death metal and all that kind of and stuff. And it's just constant double bass, isn't oh, it? The whole, yeah, the whole nine yards. The whole, the, the, uh, not a lot the, of hi hat and, uh, no, I mean, it's, it's all hi hat, bass drum and, and snare. A lot of cymbals. Yeah. You know, you know, simple tom work. 
you know, but just constant double bass, you know, not, not to the speed of what they got, of okay. what they do now, but, you know, um, one guy, one drummer that had a huge impact on me was Tommy Aldridge. Tommy Aldridge. He? he played for Black Oak, Arkansas, and he played oh, for, yeah. um, um, Oh, I'm going blank. He played with White Snake. Mm-hmm. Um, he played with uh, Ted Nugent. He played as his best stuff. I think was what he played with Ozzy. He played with Ozzy right after Ozzy left Sabbath. He was Ozzy's drummer. Okay, for the first couple. Is of that months. when Randy Rhodes was with Ozzy? Yeah, he was with Randy Rhodes and okay. uh, um, Rudy Sarza and all that. So he was. He had a he had a huge impact on me, and I ended up taking lessons from him because he lived in the desert. And from a roundabout way, I I was able to get introduced to him from my drum teacher, and you know I got. To you take, must have been in heaven. Oh, I was playing. He had a custom made car. He's a cyclist, and he had a carbon fiber drum set made for him by Yamaha. And um, I played the drums really loud, like I hit very hard. I've told every band that I've ever played with, if you ask me to play quietly or you think I'm too loud, I am the wrong guy for you. You know, yeah. like pick somebody else and I'm cool with it, you know, <clears throat> and I sat down on uh, Aldridge's kit and I started playing and he was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got to stand out in front of these drums. You know, he's got a little Southern thing going yeah. on and, uh, and he's standing out in front and he goes, you know, when you, when you're sitting behind the kit, the way the drums sound is completely different from when you're standing in front of the kit when they're projecting. Yeah. And so he had never really got to hear his kit, you know, and it was very new. He'd only had it for a short amount of time. And so I'm just, you know, banging away on these suckers and he's got these, you know, 24 by 24 inch bass drums and it's just it's just a monster kit. And uh yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. It was just a definitely a memorable experience for me. But, um, you know, so I'm, I'm doing that. I'm playing, I'm playing the death metal and I'm playing with these older guys. And would it be fair to say that that was your first <clears throat> sense of who you were and an identity was no, no, what, no, what, what no. was your first, I, uh, oh, first sense of, of identity didn't uh, genuine, genuinely, uh, where you could kind of feel your place in the world and who you were and, and how maybe you fit about it three, four years ago. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't until I got sober. I didn't realize how out of sorts and uncomfortable and no identity that I really was. I really had, I just, I was loaded, man. I was loaded. I was loaded. You know, I was just loaded. You know, I smoked pot every day, every day, every day, every day. Um, I started doing speed in high school. The, the, some of the older guys introduced me to a little bit of speed and I went from sniffing it to smoking it to dropped out of school and in rehab at 17 really quick. <laughs> it happened a lot quicker than I realized. And, um, so stimulants are mostly your, your thing more than, yeah, stimulants. I mean, I, you know, I like the opiates too. Um, they're a great way to come down after you've been, you know, going high for a long time. It's, you know, you got to come down. See, a big part of my, my story is, is that I was very able to maintain. I was able to maintain. I was able to, I was able to show up for work. I was able to make you and everyone in my family think that I was just okay, just keeping it together enough to, you know, not fire off any alarms. And, um, you know, there was a lot of fear, you know, like my mom can't know and I have to, you know, like I was a lot of fear of mom, 
You know, there was a lot of, you know, she's five foot two and redheaded, you know, <laughs> there was a lot of fear of this little neurotic Jewish woman. And, you know, I love her to death. She is a very, a, she's a, a great lady and she loves me so much. And why I was so scared of her, um, you know, I didn't realize till hearing guys like you talk about things in, in support group that, uh, I was never given, this is something I think I mentioned to you. I don't remember getting praise. I never got that. You know, any, anything that I went to my mom with, Hey mom, guess what? Da, 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 you know, and, or this happened. And you know, it, her response was, well, you know, if you had done this, it would have been better. And, Oh, you don't know what you're doing. And you know, there was never like, Hey, I am proud of you. Good job. Congratulations. That did not happen, you know, and that's cause that's what she was given. You know, she was never given that, you know, my grandmother was, oh, we used to joke and say, you big dummy. You know, that's, that's what she would say, you know, to my grandfather. And that's what she would say to, you know, to all of us, you know? And, um, so that's where my mom came from, you know? And it's like, you know, I remember being in therapy sometime down the road and, um, she says, and I said to my therapist, I said, you know, I just, you know, I just, I was talking about how we, my mom and I got into it over something and I was hurt and disappointed. And she said to me, she goes, when are you going to realize that you have an expectation of a person who's not capable of doing that thing that you're expecting from her? You know, she's never, you are never going to be able to go to her with something that you're happy about and expecting her to give you some sort of happiness, some sort of gratitude, some sort of praise and, and, and you'll genuinely feel it, you know? And, um, she said, until you stop doing that, you're going to continue to be injured by her. You know, you have to find someone else to go to, to get that from, you know? And, uh, remarkably in the last, I'd say year or two, she's made an attempt to do that. I think it's, what made her aware of it. Did you, share with her or did you stop going to her for that? Well, and that woke her up? Uh, both, both. Um, I, I, I remember my first year of, um, sobriety was, Oh my God, I'm sober. Oh my God, I'm sober. Um, my second year of sobriety was, um, fuck you. All of you suck. You're all fucking assholes. Look what you've done to me. Third year of sobriety. Oh, <laughs> I'm the asshole. <laughs> I got it. I'm sorry. Wow. Um, fourth year of sobriety was, okay, I'm the asshole, but now I need to start how to learn how to not be that guy. And the way that I start not being that guy is by doing some good stuff. I always say when I, when I talk that I came in and I had no self-esteem. And then somebody said, Hey, if you want some self-esteem, you have to do some esteemable acts. And I started doing esteemable acts and I got low self-esteem. <laughs> and that was a huge you reach for the stars. It was a huge improvement for me. <laughs> yeah. you know? And you know, today I'd like to think that I have, uh, you know, some self-esteem, you know? Um, and, uh, it's, uh, the way you carry yourself is so vastly different than the guy that rolled in six and a half years ago. You could barely make eye contact. You were filled with shame. You uh, were so pessimistic 
and filled with fear. And uh, <laughs> within six months, we saw the light start to come on in your eyes. And it's it's one of my favorite things in support groups is to is to see that person that's always been inside somebody begin to flourish and the addiction begin to kind of retreat a bit fall off yeah, yeah. well that's uh you've been paying attention <laughs> it's you can't miss it i mean that's that's exactly it. when it really started to happen for me was you know three to six about six months yeah started at three by six months i think i actually started to uh well i remember i started coming to the support group and i remember there's a um there's a timer that has to you know you're if we don't time each other we'll talk about our, ourselves forever and um i remember i'm in there and i'm like i don't know a month or two sober and i'm whining and moaning about you know some you know this that whatever it was and randy who was on the show he's like you know these newcomers come in here and you have to respect the timer you know with his you know military sergeants that you know respect the timer you know and then another guy chimes in and he's talking to lee he's talking about you know the same thing and i'm like you know i come home from the meeting and i'm called my sponsor I'm like, you son of a bitch just hate those bastards they don't, they don't understand man you know and my sponsor was such a smart ass. He was just like, check it out, homeboy. He goes, you're going to become the timer. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when you took over the timer. <laughs> and you know what? That yeah. was the best thing that ever happened to me because yeah. that's exactly when I dealt myself into that room. And I people started to know who I was. And I, people would, guys like you would say, hey, Brian, hey, Cinderblock. Hey, what's going on, man? You know, and I felt a part of. Isn't it the greatest feeling when people begin to know your name in a support group? I think if it does, if you don't, uh, yes, yes, without a doubt, it's a huge feeling for me. That was especially for us with the with the loneliness and stuff we feel invisible. Like, absolutely, I'm still shocked that people know my name when when you know I've been going to that Thursday night support group for twelve years. And I'm still taken aback a little bit when when people know my name. Isn't it weird? It takes a while for like, you know, somebody to give you some sort of like positive, you know, you know, and, and it's still there's almost like this slight. I wouldn't say you cringe, but like, it's like, man, that's just fucking awkward, man. You know, it's weird. I am not. I'm not program. used to being seen. I'm not used to being seen or given that positive praise. And, you know, I know this. Some what's of this, your angle? Yeah. <laughs> what what's in, what's you in it for something. you? You want something, motherfucker. I know what you want. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, uh, but you know, the, 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 the thing is, is that, you know, I took the action of asking for the commitment. Someone suggested it. I was desperate and willing enough to do it. And that's what the whole support group, that's, that's how it works in a nutshell. And, you know, it drives me nuts when people come in and, you know, they say, Oh, it didn't work for me. And, you know, and well, they didn't, you know, they didn't do what was asked of them. They didn't, you know, they didn't, you know, stick their hand out. And, you know, I mean, if you were drowning in the water, I mean, would you put your hand up over the water and say, throw me the life raft? I mean, that's basically what you have to yeah. do. That's what, when it changed for me at that Thursday night uh, group was I was sitting in the back with my arms folded because nobody knew my name. 
and uh, being resentful that guys were uh, calling on each other. Uh, and because we don't, uh, for those the listeners, we at that particular meeting we don't raise our hands. We just kind of tag team it. And uh, and then as I began to do the work in the support group, I realized well my part in it is I'm not making the effort. Sure, it would be nice if everybody came up to me and asked me what my name was and started calling on me, but. You know, a part of life is you're going to deal with the hand that is is dealt. And so I started going to dinner with with them, just invited myself uh, and sat down at dinner with them uh, at the place next door before the meeting. And within two weeks, they knew my name. And within three weeks, they were calling on me. And I went from I, I fucking hate this meeting to I can't wait for Thursday night. And, and that to me is... Um, alcoholism in a nutshell, drug addiction in a nutshell. Um, priceless. It's that feeling is priceless. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, the thing the thing that you were just talking about with a willingness, and I get emails from time from people that have a loved one who uh, who is deep in their addiction. And they want to know what to do, and they want to try to fix that person. And the willingness to do the things that you did are, I'm sure, a direct result of the desperation you felt. Because you could see that you were at the end of a dead-end street. What what uh, What does coach say? You can't coach desire? Yeah. You can't you can't give someone desire. You can't show somebody desire. That has to just come on your own. You know, life has to bring you to a place where you have yes. that. And if uh, you know, back to my stepmom and my brother. My if brother. you're enabling somebody, they're not gonna they're not gonna feel the full burden of their decisions. I think I think you know the whole tough love thing. Some people say, does it work? Doesn't it work? All I can say is is this. Um, Tell them you love them and nothing else and stay the hell away from them, you know, for their benefit. If they and don't f- want help for, yeah, unless they're, unless they're saying, unless they say, I want help. And then once they say, I want help, you know, you don't help, you don't do the help for them. <laughs> you, know, you know, they, you know, I, I, I always, you know, like perfect example, you know, my stepmom and my brother, well, he cries and calls for help and she picks up the phone, makes all the phone calls, does all the work. And then he complains about what place he's going to go to. And it has to be like this and it has to be here and it has to be there. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, um, when I really wanted the drugs, I really picked up the phone by myself and called the dealer all by myself and found the way to get the money. You know, I could have no money, no car and no drugs at 8 a.m. And by two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm high in Santa Monica with a pocket full of money and a pocket full of drugs. You know, you can make it happen. You know, you can make it happen if you want it. You know, if you want the drugs bad enough, you want the recovery bad enough, you'll make it happen. But it's about the actions that you got to take. And that's the big thing is, you know, people don't, people want to want to get sober. Yeah. People, they want to want to do it. They want to do it. You know, if you want to do it, that's great. It's not for people who want it. It's not for people who need it. It's for people who do it. Simple. You know, it's simple, but it's almost impossible sometimes. 
give me some snapshots of your uh, drug addiction leading up to your and your your bottom. Uh, okay, um, I mentioned seventeen years old rehab, um, dropped out of high school, um, went to uh, went to rehab, got out of rehab, was in L.A. Um, in uh, a sober living, adolescent sober living. This is important. Um, I'm at this adolescent sober living house and. I get loaded day three. All of us are getting loaded. One kid has a actual actually has a sponsor. He's getting loaded, but we're, he has a sponsor. So we all. I had my stepmom's van, and I was the only one who had, a, had wheels. So we all hop into this, you know, Toyota Previa van. We called it the Starship Enterprise, and uh, we're off to the coffee house. And we get to this coffee house. It was over off of Barham, and you know there was no Starbucks and stuff like that. It was just you know this was. So um, we get there, and this dude, who must have been about 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, he stands up, and he's got a tank top on, and his sleeves, he's got half-sleeve tattoos, you know, up to his elbows on both, you know, black and gray, and he gets up, and he kind of looks back at us, and we're at the back of the coffee house, and he's in the front, and he comes walking out, and all I remember is he had an orange Rambler, and he talked for about an hour straight, you know, and I was just kind of like a little bit in awe of this guy, you know? So um, I end up um, I end up looking for speed. Um, what some, was he talking about? Don't even remember. No clue. I know that we were there, and he was talking, and he was one of the guys' sponsors, and that's about as far as I remember. Oh, so he was a sober guy. He was a sober guy. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he was he was sponsoring one of the guys from our house. I see. And um, <laughs> who was getting loaded? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so. Um, uh, I, I'm out one day and I'm looking for crack or I'm looking for speed mm-hmm. and uh, homeboy says, I got crack. And I said, well, that sounds great. And so I crack s- will always do in a pinch when you yeah, can't find speed. You know, it's like, I'll settle for it. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think Dolly Madison said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I proceeded to try and smoke, um, crack in a speed pipe and um you know not really knowing what the hell i was doing and um somehow i caught pneumonia i had respiratory failure i was in the hospital for seven days i got out of there it was pretty clear that i wasn't sober anymore and uh, i went back to palm springs with my mom um i needed some time to recuperate i was physically pretty devastated from this uh, pneumonia thing and uh why? Why? I'm sorry to to interrupt, but why can't you smoke crack out of a speed pipe? I've never smoked either, so it, it, you can. It's just not the best way to harsh. do it. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's brutal. Okay. Yeah, it's it's really harsh, and it also um, it you know the the um, the heat of the glass I think melts it out too fast, and it and it goes in it it dissolves too quickly. Um, with the with the speed, it takes the heat and it just you know smokes up the other one. It just like it goes to liquid and it's gone in seconds. I see. And also too, it's like running all over the place because there's no Brillo and you know all that kind of nonsense. So, not to get technical, but you know, um, um, I'm so glad I never tried crackers or smoking uh, speed. Great stuff. You so missed out. <laughs> you should totally go back. Anyway, so um, I'm back in I'm back in in the desert. My mom says I'm going to San Diego for the summer because the desert's hot. 
So she says, you got to get a job. And I get a job at a Jewish community center as a summer camp counselor. And this was a lot of fun. Summer camp counselor, cute girls. Um, everybody's partying, smoking a lot of pot. And I'm thinking to myself at this point, I'm like, as long as I just stick to the pot and maybe just snort some drugs <laughs> that, you know, I, that I got, you know, I sensible, just, you know, you're nothing if not sensible. I, you know, we switch from, you know, scotch to brandy, you know, from beer to wine, you know, as long as I don't smoke it, I'm okay. You know, all that rationally, rationalization or whatever. Um, so I, I did pretty well there. Um, I looked like I was doing pretty well there. I got the job, did well. They asked if I wanted to stay, give me a full-time position. I decided to go and try some junior college. Um, and so I'm down in San Diego and I'm doing that. And I found a punk rock band to play with. And, um, they have like, you know, they're like jocks and all that kind of stuff. So they had all these chicks and like lots of friends and like, you know, so next thing you know, I, there's lots of girls around and there's lots of friends and, you know, I'm snorting cocaine and drinking Jack Daniels and playing punk rock and having a good time. And it, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Those were the, that was the fun time. That was the fun years. Now let's not get it twisted for a second. I was always the guy who was up till three, four o'clock in the morning, you know, doing, getting one more bag. I was always, you know, everyone else, you know, snorted a line or two and just kept drinking where I'm like attacking the cocaine, you know? And, uh, you know, but that was management for me. That was, that was good management. You know, I was, I was keeping it under control. Um, and uh, eventually made friends with a kid whose uncle was in the cartel in Tijuana. And uh, he was he used to get driven around by a couple of large gentlemen. And um, whatever, whatever we needed, you know, he just wanted to hang out with, you know, young kids by the beach and girls and stuff like that. And, you know, so I'm doing a little bit of sales at this point. And uh, I'm selling, you know, I'm working at the summer camp. Um, five and six year olds, I'm teaching preschool, right? And I'm selling cocaine to the parents. <laughs> Sleeping with maybe some of them. Um, yeah, but that was fun. You know, that was, you know, un it's, it's under control. This is good stuff, you know, and Eventually, um, we kind of, we had this little apartment at the corner of Grand and Ingram in Pacific Beach. And it, um, you know, I had the cocaine connection. One guy was a DJ, you know, before you know it, it was just party central. And the landlord said, you know, you're the only one who pays his rent on time, you know, but, uh, you gotta go. And so I told my dad, I was, you know, I was moving. I was going to find another place down in San Diego. And he said, it's enough of that shit. I want you to come to work for me. So, you know, he offered me a good salary and it was a lot better than eating bean and cheese burritos on the beach. And I came up there and, you know, I started learning the jewelry business and, um, working, you know, cleaning the toilets and, you know, just, I started from the bottom, you know, I started from the bottom and, you know, I started, uh, assisting our production manager. And at that time our business was thriving, thriving, thriving. We had, you know, over 20 employees and, you know, wow. we, yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't even produce the merchandise fast enough, you know? And, uh, you know, and then I get back, you know, and, and, and I'm still just snorting it. I hadn't gone back to smoking any 
hard drugs at this point. Pot every day, you know, pot every day, all day, every day, multiple times a day, you know, five, six times a day. Would you hide it from your dad? The pot? Yeah. I wouldn't smoke it directly in front of him, but, you know, I mean, you can only walk in the door, you know. I mean, you smoke four or five times a day. I would go to run downtown to pick up diamonds and metal and things like that, and I'm smoking in my car on the way there and on my car on the way back and... You know, I mean, come on. I thought nobody knew, but, you know, now I, you know, my brother thinks nobody knows and he's obvious, you know, so I'm sure everybody knew, you know, um, but I thought nobody knew. Did you ever get stoned and forget where you put the diamonds? Um, actually, luckily, no, I did not. The diamonds were expensive enough that I remembered where that shit was, okay. you know, um, you know, maybe some diamonds got used to make some things that weren't supposed to be made, but that's a whole nother story. Um, but, um, you know, and then, you know, one day I run into a friend of a friend and he teaches me how to cook up, uh, cocaine. And, uh, that's when I learned how to use the right pipe and, uh, and it was on and cracking literally. And, uh, how much yeah. was your habit up to towards the end? You know, I would binge. Um, I would binge. Um, so I would get, um, it's crazy because I'm going downtown and I've got, you know, you know, sometimes a couple hundred thousand dollars in diamonds on me. And then I'm driving my Mercedes over to Skid Row to go buy crack. You know, I mean. That is insane. The amount of, okay, so, you know, I'm, I've got, you know, 500 bucks, six, 700 bucks cash in my pocket. It's Tuesday night. It's 11 o'clock at night and I'm in skid row in a Mercedes, you know, the fact with that I diamonds, sometimes, sometimes not, but you know, I mean, what is anyone doing with at that hour in skid row buying crack driving around with that guy? I mean, you know, the fact, and they knew me, you know, like I knew people down there, you know, and you know, so yeah, that's, uh, you know, like I've, I've, you know, smoked crack on the corner of 7th and Gladys and, you know, and I know where, you know, 6th and San Pedro. Do they give you a Ju- patch for that, for uh, your jacket? Actually, you, you get a patch for your vest, for your leather vest. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like a badge of, uh, badge of honor. Um, yeah, I want to talk about an identity. There's an identity. I'm a crackhead, you know. I'm a, I'm a skid row crackhead, you know, I'm not, I I get in my Mercedes and drive back to the Valley, you know, when, when could you not deny that you were a crackhead? Oh man. Um, from the time that I started smoking it again, when I got back from San Diego, I knew that I was, you know, this was a problem that it owned you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I thought I was, uh, you know, maintaining well enough. Cause I would, you know, I would smoke, uh, you know, I'd get off of work and, you know, I'd, I'd pick up some crack in downtown or I'd get it from somebody local and then I'd go home and I'd smoke crack till 12, one o'clock at night. And then I would, you know, do some pills or some opiates or some heroin and, you know, I didn't not know sh- you did heroin, not shooting it, not okay. shooting it. I would snort it. Um, I'd put it in some scotch and eat it. You know, I was too scared to, um, I smoked it a couple of times, but I was, you know, I was a little fearful of that. <clears throat> and, um, but pills and, you okay. know, Xanax and all that kind of stuff. So I was the guy who would take, I would take the last hit of crack and then I would take the bottle of whatever hard alcohol I was drinking and I would literally pinch my nose and just swallow like a third to half of the bottle, just right off the top. I did that every time I smoked crack. I would buy a case of beer and I would buy a fifth of something. And, um, 
you know, I'd be drinking beers as I'm smoking crack all night long to just keep to the, keep it keep the right. You know, the it's right all mix. about it's all about balancing on that balance beam. You got to get the. You know, I love what was the guy who said. You know, I think I got it right back in '88 for about 15 minutes. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's like you know you're you're searching for that perfect balance the whole time that you're never going to get. You know, and so. Um, you know that's that's kind of what it was, and what ended up happening is, is I met a um, lovely um, little uh, junkie um, young lady uh, down in Skid Row, and um, you met her on Junkies dot com, right? <laughs> you guys, perfect match. Yeah. Hey, you both like opiates. Yeah, Skid Row dot com. You're an enabler. Yeah, you're uh, <laughs> you're both enablers. I've got money, and um, you know you're female. And you'll say, yes, if I have drugs and, uh, how easy it is to take you hostage. Um, she took me hostage. I took her hostage. Um, but, um, you know, she was, uh, she was a prostitute and she worked the streets in Skid Row and, um, she was like 22 years old, about five foot tall, blonde hair, blue eyes, and about a hundred pounds. And I was going to save her because she had a problem. I was fine. She was a heroin addict, you know, and, um, she walked into my house and it was, uh, Sid and Nancy, you know, it was Sid and Nancy. Luckily, um, I didn't kill her, you know, but I'll tell you something. There were a few fights that I realized how guys could be sitting on death row for killing people. You know, like I really, I went through there. I also, in other words, you got so mad. So, I mean, I, you got to remember too, I started working out and getting into the gym when I was like in my late twenties and immediately steroids, you know, so I abused steroids for a a long time, you know, over 10 years. And, um, so, you know, I'm shooting a lot of steroids you know, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't just, you know, testosterone. It was a cocktail of crap and I'm, you know, stabbing myself three times a week and, you know, 750 to a thousand milligrams of test, which is like a shitload, you know? Wow. And so, um, and were you ever violent with her? Wasn't violent. You know, I wasn't, I've never been a violent guy. You know, I didn't, you know, um, my, you know, temper yelling and screaming, you know, we, uh, we would get into it, you know, we'd grab each other, throw each other around and, you know, we did that during sex too. So, you know, it's just, the whole thing was just nuts. You know, it was just really sick. It was really nuts. You know, she had a sugar daddy that she would run back to if my cash got too low and I didn't have enough drugs around. And, you know, she would go back to him, win his confidence. He'd buy her a bunch of dope. I'd go back and we'd rob him in the house and I'd bring her back. (laughs) I think there's a children's book in here. Yeah. Yeah. This was, you know, uh, well, Mickey, Mickey says he wants to do the, uh, um, the pop-up version with pop-ups, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that's kind of what was going on and, you know, and I'm working at the jewelry store running this, you know, helping to run this, you know, multi-million dollar business and, um, you know, and I go home to hopefully she, I come home and she's there because she hasn't run downtown to go sell herself because I didn't give her, leave her enough drugs. You know, if I didn't leave her enough bags of heroin during the day while I was gone, she would split, go turn a trick and then come back. And, you know, so that's, that's, you know, that's the kind of, that's what it kind of looked like. And I remember what ended up happening was, um, she's in the bathroom naked crying and I have white tile in the bathroom and it's covered with blood and 
she's naked. She's got the shower on and she's got a heater in there because she's trying to get warm enough to find a vein and she's stabbing herself and she can't find a vein and she's hysterically crying. And I'm sitting on this couch in my bedroom and I'm not kidding you. Um, I'm sitting there with a fifth and some beer and some crack and some pills and the whole nine yards and the show intervention is on. (laughs) Not kidding you. Show intervention is on and I'm sitting there on this couch and I look over at her in the bathroom and I think to myself, how did I get here? How did I get here? You know, I was just playing punk rock at the beach and snorting cocaine like yesterday, you know, like, how did it get to this? You know? And, um, I remember thinking to myself, man, I, I I can't, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I can't, I, I cannot stop, you know, at this point, the, the ability to choose has been long removed from me. You know, I cannot stop. And, uh, you know, um, when I was one thing that was important I missed is when I was about 27, um, I got in trouble. Um, I was lied to by an underage girl, um, on a cruise ship and, um, she had been given alcohol by somebody. And according to the law where we were in the Mississippi river, underage and alcohol and sex equals rape. So I was charged with that. Oh my God. I never knew that. And she had told you she was 18. Yeah. She told me she was 18 and, um, she was 16 and, uh, long story short, um, everything got dropped. Um, she, you know, she always, she had admitted that it was consensual and, you know, the family was actually had a lawsuit against the cruise line cause we were on a cruise ship and mm-hmm. the case got dropped cause long story short, the whole thing ended up going away. Um, but I remember when I, I walked into um, a support group not far from where I lived, and I knew that there were... Were you court-ordered? I was not. Okay. I just knew in, intuitively that for some reason I should go, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't know how that I knew that there was one going on at this one rec hall, but I knew that there was one going on at this one rec hall. And um, I started going, and... um I remember I was, I don't know, I, I, I was about 90 days sober, supposedly. And, um, um, I went to support groups and identified as an alcoholic, a sober alcoholic for two years loaded every day. I got high every day and was lying about it in support group. And, um, I had a sponsor. I went to men's meetings. My sponsor and my friends started a men's stag meeting and I'm high every day lying every day in support group every day. And, um, you know, so if you have to go and you're not sure if you can walk into that, one of those rooms and actually walk in there without being under the influence, go, cause you're welcome there. You can, you can go to, you can go to any support group, whether you're sober or you're not. Um, if you're making an ass out of yourself, they'll ask you to leave. But you know, if you walk in there and you're loaded, it's okay. You know, I did it for two years and it's important that I say that. Um, so, um, I, I meet this guy and I'm 
really bummed out. You know, I can't figure out why I'm so bummed out. You know, I'm going to support group and I'm still bummed out because I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm loaded every day. But um, so he says, come meet me over at Maria's. I'm with my sponsor. We're over at Maria's having dinner. And so I sit down and this six foot seven dude is sitting across from me. And he's I sit down and he talks for an hour straight. So I ask him to be my sponsor. Yeah. I'm walking out of the bathroom of his house. We all met at his house a couple days later to go to a group. And uh, I walk out and there's this picture on the wall. And it's a picture of him with the tank top on, with the half sleeve tattoos. And it clicked. It was exactly 10 years later from 17 to 27. This is that guy that I ran into at the coffee house. Um, he was my sponsor. And the whole two years that I was around and... um you know, at that time, um, I didn't tell anybody I relapsed. I just, you know, cause I had never really been sober. I just kind of stopped going and mm-hmm. kind of walked away and I had met her and she was my higher power. And, um, um, cause I can get addicted to her just like I can get addicted to mm-hmm. it. And, um, so fast forward back to interventions on TV. I can't believe I got here. The next morning we come to around noon, we have to get downtown cause we have to get more drugs. And, um, I had stolen a check from my work and I was going to cash it at the bank of America at the corner of Woodman and Riverside. And I'd been, you know, smoking crack for three days and she's in the car nodded out from, you know, the last shot of heroin she did. And, um, I pull up to the side of the bank and I walk around the corner and walking out of the bank, it had been three years plus, um, walking out of the doors of the bank was this guy, Tommy and, you know, six, seven. And he just looks down at me and he goes, Hey homeboy, how you living? <laughs> Mind you, uh, I'd been in meetings, you know, with people and I'm in line at seven 11. I got a case of beer under my arms and you know, Hey, how's that support group working out for you? Uh, yeah. I'm good. I got this case of beer. I'll catch you later. You know, you yeah. know, and, uh, never cried out to anybody at that time. But for some reason, when I saw him at that moment, um, I had what it talks about in our literature as a white light experience. And I looked at him and the words that came out of my mouth, I will never forget. I said, I need help. I said, I can't stop. Can you please help me? And, um, I kind of fell against the wall of the bank and I just, I was, I, the words I was saying as I was crying and I couldn't stop and I just, I couldn't stop crying. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said to me, you're going to be okay. And he was right. You know, he was right. And I don't know how, I don't know how, um, I don't know why. I don't know any of that. I really don't. I just know that it happened. And somehow in that moment, um, I believe it was a power greater than me came into my life and gave me the ability to say that to him, you know, and, uh, that guy saved my life. You know, that guy saved my life in that moment. And, uh, he's an amazing guy. The stuff he does today is amazing. And, uh, 
he said, you, I kind of gave him a quick up to date. She's in the car and, <laughs> you know, she'll go sell her ass if, you know, I don't buy her drugs. And, and he says, go tell that girl that you are done and it's over with. And, and I'm like, but she's going to leave. And he's like, let her go, you know, let her go. So I got in the car. I don't know. Again, I don't know how I did this. I don't know how I did this. You know, I mean, up until the moment I said, please help me the moment before that I was paralyzed by fear that she would leave and I was going to do anything. I was going to steal checks to run into that bank to do whatever I had to do to keep it going because I needed to get high and she needed to be there. And, but he said, do it. And I was just willing, you know, like we were talking about that willingness, man. It just came to me, you know, you know, it, it wasn't coached into me. It was just given to me. And and I think too, part of what that power comes from that gives us the ability to learn a new way of living at least this was my experience and i get the feeling it was your experience too is there's an energy coming off that person that that we whose direction we follow that we can see something is working in their life and so we believe that that they that that, that we can get that was let me Tom, ask you was Tommy was, Tommy I know Tommy well enough to know that one of the things Tommy one of the words Tommy used to use with me a lot was consistent and I knew that Tommy was consistent and I knew that he was sober and I knew um you know you don't run into somebody at 17 at 27 and then in a moment where you're probably at your weakest in your life you know I mean you know, did I intuitively put all that stuff together in that moment? Hell no. But, you know, there was something about him that I knew that I would, I would, I would be safe there. And, um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I got in the car and I said, uh, I can't do this anymore. And she was nodded out and went from nodded out to wide awake in two seconds. <laughs> And what do you mean you're not, you know, what are you talking about? We, we got to go downtown. And I'm like, I can't do this. I'm done. You don't understand. I'm done. I'm not going downtown. It's over. I'm done. And she's like, are you really going to do this to me? You mother, but you know, like mm -hmm. the whole nine yards that she grabs her bag and she's throwing needles in it and just trying to get her stuff together. And, you know, she gets out of the car, slams the door, walks across the street, and literally it's almost seemed like the first car that came around the corner she hopped in and just took off. And I'm like in my car driving, trying to chase her down because she's running across the street. There's a median, so I can't flip around. And, you know, and, and I'm on the phone with Tommy, and, um, and he says, let her go, man. Just let her go. And, uh, you know, he said, come meet me at my shop. And, uh, I did. And, uh, I went to a meeting and, uh, I heard this guy who had a long time sober. I heard him say, I love being sober today. I love being sober today more than I did when I first got here. And the only thought that came into my head was yes. Yeah. For, I want that. Yes, I want that, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I, I remember, um, so 
I get back from that meeting with Tommy, that first meeting, and she comes back to the house with the sugar daddy. And she's like, it was the next morning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that happened like around two o'clock in the afternoon, one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I went to a meeting with him. I came home. I smashed my all my drug paraphernalia. I had my last hit of weed and came down because I had been up for three days on crack. And um, I remember smashing the pipe thinking, like, really? Like, you're going to, that's it? And I did. And I threw all the crap in the trash. And I went to bed. And I woke up in the morning to her knocking on the door at, like, 7 a.m. And she wanted her clothes that were in the house. And she grabbed me by the throat. And she got, you know, she was crazy. And. Um, I open the door and she grabs me and like, I'm trying to get her off of me. And, um, I didn't realize it until later, but she had, you know, I got all her stuff, put it in trash bags. It was very dramatic yelling and screaming. The neighbors are going, what the hell's going on? Um, my friends came and picked me up later. Um, spawn guys that Tommy sponsored and they said, what happened to your neck? And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I look in the mirror and sure enough, she had made marks on my neck. And now I'm getting worried because she's crazy enough to like, you know, go to the police and say that I did something to her. Mm-hmm. And, um, so they, you know, one of my friends had been in a situation similar and he said, listen, you just need to go to the police station and you file a report on what happened, you know, just so mm-hmm. that it's on record that that happened. And I was very reluctant. The last thing I wanted to do was walk to the police station. And so we went to the meeting and, uh, after the meeting, they dropped us off at the Van Nuys police station, which is like right, you know, right by my house. And one of the guys stayed with me and stayed the night with me. And I remember sitting on the bench in the waiting room of the Van Nuys police department. And I'm looking there and the cops are watching world championship poker and they are not really wanting to help me or write a report. And, uh, I remember looking at the time and it was like 1145 and it dawned on me. I had smashed my pipe around 1030 the day before and I had a day, you know, I had Mm. one day. I couldn't, I, it was, I can't believe it. You know, I felt so proud of myself. You know, I was, I was shocked. I was proud. Um, couldn't even remember the last time I went a whole day, you know, and, uh, I went to bed that night and, uh, I woke up the next morning and, uh, the first couple of weeks, couple of months. I mean, I was, you know, I was drinking, binge drinking every, you know, three, four times a week. I mean, I had to detox pretty bad. I did not go to a rehab. Um, um, I have nothing against it, but I personally don't believe in it. Um, I think some people need medical help to get off of certain substances without a doubt where they could mm. really hurt themselves or they could die. Um, it was not my case. Um, I wasn't going to do that. And, um, you know, I soaked pillows with sweat for 45 days and, um, you know, it was a hot summer and, uh, I remember being in one of the support groups that meets around noon and, uh, there's no air conditioning in there. And I remember (laughs) having the sweat drip off my face down into my chest through the middle of my chest and pool up on my t-shirt in on my stomach and it was just like the the bottom of my t-shirt was wet from all the sweat pouring off of me, you know, dripping down off of my chest. And I'm just like, 
And I'm like, yeah, this is great. So uncomfortable. I could, I, you know, but it didn't matter. Like it didn't matter. You know, there were days that I just was like, you know, I can't wait till this stupid thing is finished. And, and there were days that I heard things that just kept me coming back one more day, you know? And, uh, what, whatever became of, uh, the girl. Um, I got involved with an interventionist, um, somebody who had a show on TV actually. Um, and he's kind of a famous interventionist and I just ran into him in a random fashion. And after about a year of being sober, I started to work with him and, uh, she reached out for help. Um, she reached out for, she's reached out to, for help about a half dozen times. Um, in the last six and a half years, um, the last time was about three weeks ago and, um, it's always the same story. I just, you know, you need to do this and you need to do this and I want you to do this and, you know, just come and let me stay with you and, and no, you need help Ash and you need this and da 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 and then, uh, no, you don't understand and you don't care. Nobody cares. And da, 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 and these, you know, these guys are down here raping me every night and yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, you know, when you're ready, you know, when you're ready, when you're ready to stop calling the shots and when you're ready to stop telling me how I'm going to help you, you know, cause if your plan worked, you wouldn't be calling me, you know? And you know, she just, she just doesn't get it. You know, the interventionist, um, this guy does high profile, interventions for extremely wealthy people. Um, and, uh, I mean, he charges, you know, 50, 70, hundred thousand dollars a month. And, uh, he decided to help her for free and, uh, you know, three weeks in a, you know, private condo on the beach in Newport beach with a chef and a therapist and a yoga and, you know, everything that, the, you know, I'm so against all of that stuff. Com- I, yeah. it, it's so counter to me. It, it's, it's not, it's not, has nothing to do with recovery. Nothing. Nothing. Zero. I think the, the, the ego needs to be smashed, not uh, pampered. Exactly. With that 100%. Um, you know, my sponsor told me when I started doing this work, he said to me, he goes, you know, um, working in treatment, recovery or private, you know, um, intervention is, uh, has nothing to do with recovery. It's yeah. a business. Yeah. And, uh, that's what it's all about. And, uh, but it's a good way to make money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I wanted to make extra money. I've worked it since I was 12 years old. So he tried to help her. She, she lasted about seven, eight days. And then she ran back to the sugar daddy who rapes her and beats her and gives her drugs. And this is what she continues to do, you know? Mm. And, uh, she's still blonde haired, blue eyed, you know, beautiful girl and, uh, hundred pounds and, uh, she's killing herself, you know, sleeping, sleeping with, uh, whoever will give her $20 or a hit a crack, you know, and, uh, you know, it's sad. You know, I don't know. I, you know, there, when, when I go, there's been times where it was like a year, year and a half. I didn't hear from her and I was pretty well convinced that either she was locked up or she was dead. And then, you know, you get a phone call or you get an email and, uh, you know, Hey, Bri, just wanted to check in and tell you, you know, what I, could, I need. Yeah. <laughs> I could really use a friend right now. And so, you know, mm-hmm. can't, we can't, um, 
you know, like I said, what, what the the gift that I've been giving, I, I wish I could give it to anybody. You know, I wish I could give it to people, but you know, not everybody gets the gift that we're given, and I don't know why. Um, I, I think because they're not willing to do it in a way that, like you said, where they're not calling the shots. Yeah. They don't understand that that's the first hurdle is to you have to be open for help to come in a form that isn't how you would choose it. If anything coming out of your mouth is a direction, you're you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. It's yeah. your disease talking. Your disease is doing ninety percent of the talking when you're any direction you come up with, or any 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 if anything that you're trying to do <laughs> to get sober originates from your head or your mind or your thoughts. Yeah, it's wrong. I used to do a joke, and this is based in truth. I was driving down the freeway one day, and I saw a guy that had a license plate that said "Idea Man." And my joke was, how good are your ideas if that's one of them? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What is it that uh, that uh, Lee says? He says, uh, the reason we have a sponsor is because when the idea comes from our brain and it comes out of our mouth, it sounds absolutely brilliant. But when our sponsor says the exact same words back to us, we hear how stupid it really sounds. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, you know, you know, it's not like that forever, but you know, definitely when you, when you first come around, that's, you know, you, you have to be out of the equation, you know, you have to take the direction and you have to be willing to listen, you know, eventually you start to do some esteemable acts and your perception starts to change. And, you know, before you know it, you realize that you have this intuition of what's right and what's wrong. And when you take the right intuition, the healthy intuition, you know, that's, that's walking in, in a spiritual path, you know, and, uh, you know, and it's, it, it starts with the smallest actions, you know, like, you know, I was taught in support group, you know, you want to be spiritual, use your blinker. You want to be spiritual, return your cart to the shopping cart rack. Uh, very I've shared that one many times on, very the, on the podcast. Very spiritual action. You don't need to go to India to become spiritual. And you don't even have get, to go to India. Getting a yin-yang tattoo does not make you spiritual. No, not at all. It has to do with your actions. Yeah. You know? It has to do with the little actions that you take. One thing that, that has helped me a lot is I hear the guys like you who have been around longer than me. Mm -hmm. And I hear especially one in particular that we love, both of us love so much, um, who's got 49 years. Mm -hmm. and uh, The cranky one or the other one? <laughs> no, not the cranky one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, the funny one. Okay. Um, the funny one talks about... He's my father figure in the, in the program. To, to so many of us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean... What an amazing man. Amazing. Amazing man. I don't think he realizes how amazing he is. You know, well, you know what he probably does. <laughs> Actually, we know him. Uh, but I mean just an amazing man and you know and he says that you know I, I don't have bad days, you know? I don't have bad days. You know, and I hear him talk about how it just continues to get better. He says I have bad moments. Bad moments. Bad moments, but you know, I don't I don't, bad and, and and you know what? I'll tell you something. The day that my dad died wasn't a bad day. You know, I had some, you know, I had some bad moments, mm -hmm. 
But at the end of that day, it was a good day. You know, I was able to look at some of the positives that happened during that day. You know, um, I had guys that we all know that I'm some of them that I'm very close with. Um, and that's a very huge part of what happens in support group for me is especially for a loner who's been left on his own his whole life. You know, I finally became a part of and started to make some friends and now I have relationships with men that I know will do things for me that my family will not, um, or can't. And, uh, you know, I had five, six guys at my house the day that my dad died. And I had, you know, guys at my house for a couple of days after that. And I had guys calling me multiple times a day, checking in on me, picking me up, taking me to other support groups. And, um, you know, Jimmy, who you had on the show mm-hmm. and, um, Jimmy took me out to a support group one night and, uh, it was the night that my father passed and he says, I'm taking you, you're driving. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, and you're also going to (laughs) speak, you know, and, uh, you know, so I'm standing at this podium and I'm, you know, so I'm telling everybody, you know, my father died today, you know, and, um, I don't know, man. Um, to be able to go through these things and, and, you know, just be able to go through them, you know, and not have to drink or use over them and not have that be a thought. Like, you know, never did that occur to me. Like, man, I need to go get a drink or I need to, God, I want to smoke some crack, you know, like that was that none of that stuff ever came into my head during any of that, you know, and that's not me, man. My best thinking is, Hey, let's grab a crack pipe and go downtown with a bag full of diamonds. You know what I'm saying? Like (laughs) that's my best thinking, you know what I mean? And so, you know, the fact that that's not the way it is for me today is, uh, it's a lot different than when I came in. I think think that's an understatement. (laughs) It's a lot different than when I came in. Well, buddy, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and, uh, and sharing your story with us. And being my friend and making me laugh and laughing at my stupid jokes. <laughs> you make me laugh. <laughs> I love you. You're, 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 uh, you're an amazing man. You're an amazing Keep man. Keep going. Keep going. No. I'm going to ease my pants off. I'm done. All right. It's enough. All right. Yeah. This didn't end how I wanted it to, but <laughs> no. I'll, I, I'll take no, it. No, I will not touch that's, you there. That's, that's part of the surrender. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Billy. I love that man. Just saw him literally an hour and a half ago uh, at our our support group. And it was such an amazing meeting tonight. Just uh, so many. I I would say there was probably about six or seven guys that cried while they were sharing. And and there was as much laughter as there, there was tears. And it was just, I feel so incredibly lucky to have that place to, um, to feel and to learn and to grow and uh, to have people like like Brian in my life. I'm a lucky man. I am a lucky man. Uh, before we take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys that there is a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined. Um, you can go to our website, mentalpod.com, and make either a one-time PayPal donation or, my favorite, a recurring monthly donation for li- as little as five bucks a month. Um, it may not seem like a lot of money to you, but it means a lot 
to me and to this show because it keeps it going. And uh, I ain't getting rich doing this show. And um, uh, there's a lot of things I'd like to do to expand it. I'd like to be able to to travel to other countries and record people. I'd like to occasionally be able to maybe bring somebody in from out of town that I, I couldn't do otherwise. Um, uh, I'd like to wear a crown of diamonds. That may seem a little excessive, but I feel like I'd be a better host with uh, if I were bejeweled. <laughs> oh, I think I might be in love with the word bejeweled. Um. You can support us financially by uh, shopping through our search portal when you're going to buy something at Amazon, and then they'll give us a couple of nickels, and it doesn't cost you a dime, you cheap fuck. All right. Easy, Paul. That's the cake talking. Um, yeah. Uh, you can also support us by buying a coffee mug or a t-shirt, and you can support us non-financially by spreading the word about the podcast um, through social media. That means a lot. And uh, by writing something nice at iTunes and giving us a good rating because that boosts our ranking and then uh, that brings some new listeners to the show. So don't give me any of this bullshit, Paul. I'd like to help out the podcast, but I, uh, I'm, a little, I'm a little broke right now. I'm eating ramen. Yeah, well, you, you put your fucking ramen down and you get on your laptop Maybe you don't have a laptop. You steal a laptop. That's right. <laughs> There's a. am giving you a one-time dispensation to go steal. You steal a laptop and you go on iTunes and you say, I love this podcast and you give it five stars. And then you also print your apology right underneath it. I'm really sorry that I stole the laptop that this was uh, written on. And then everybody winds up okay, except for the person that lost their laptop. But you know what? They need to pay. Uh, that's the price they pay for not being a listener to this podcast. Maybe they are a listener to this podcast. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm, I'm in an M.C. Escher, when is it, painting, sketch, drawing? <sighs> Again, the cake. The cake has its hold on me. You don't think the cake has fingers, but that 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 cake not only has fingers, but it has like those creepy Dracula-like fingernails, and it is just uh, it is doing a number on me, and I kind of enjoy it. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself "not so hot mess." About her PTSD, she writes, The record of my life is scratched, and the record player won't stop skipping. The same stupid part keeps playing over and over and over. I can never move forward. About being a sex crime victim. He robbed me not only of my past innocence, but my future happiness as well. That is a profound one. Um, about having dissociative identity disorder. I can never make any important decisions, such as a job change, because what if that's not the right decision for the other parts? Man, that has to be hard. Holy shit. <laughs> Let me mute that. Our, th our, our ending theme music is kicking in. Oh my God, we're at two hours. Oh, this is going to be a long one. You might want to move over to a recliner and uh, make some cocoa about um, having borderline personality disorder. She writes, I'm the Hulk. 
when I turn back into Bruce Banner, the shame of all the damage I've caused is too much to handle. Thank you for that. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself The Frog. About living with an abuser, he writes, My wife physically and emotionally abuses me. A snapshot from it. The shoe hits my neck. Fear flashes. I control my rage, only to be hit again in the dark. Then the sadness comes. So many people don't think that men can be um, victims of domestic violence. Uh, this is... And you know what really pisses me off are these fucking... Uh, uh, I'm sure there are good men's group groups out there, but so many of them are just thinly disguised misogynists that um, that refuse to um, refuse to to admit that most of the world is a patriarchy. And that's not to say there there aren't some double standards where we get screwed. You know, for instance, the you know, the hot 30-year-old teacher with the, you know, the 14-year-old boy, you know, that's still a double standard that is uh, where people think it's okay and they're, you know, wanting to high-five the kid. You know, that's a terrible double double standard that hurts, uh, hurts males. But uh, for the most part, um, yeah, anyway, I don't know. I'm sorry. The, the cake is, is making me tangential. And I can't even say the word tangential. There, I just did. Oh, I hate myself. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Wolfie. She is uh, in her 30s, raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, she's bisexual. <clears throat> she's never been sexually abused, but she has been emotionally abused. Um, uh, she writes, I had a long relationship with a man 10 years older than me that started when I was 17. You know, I'm not sure exactly how you would qualify that, but uh, a 17-year-old girl and a 27-year-old uh, man, I think there's definitely a power uh, thing. You know, even if you were 18 and it, and it was legal, I think there's still kind of a power thing there. So I don't, I don't know. Uh, she writes, I have it in perspective now, but it certainly is a huge part of who I am, and that asshole definitely fucked me up and to some extent stole what people usually refer to as, quote, the best years of my life, i.e. college. He withheld affection, manipulated me, used guilt and shame, and strung me along. My parents unfondly call him the child molester. If I saw him on the street today, though, I would merely be curious if he's still trying to get with females that are underage and if there was some way I could stop him. In parentheses, he did continue to flirt with teenagers after we broke up. Now he's 50. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Uh, I was totally obsessed with him and making him happy, so I certainly thought at the time that there were positive experiences, and I'm still a little confused about how much guilt I should carry about staying in the relationship for as long as I did. You should not carry any of the guilt. Um, uh, I should carry about staying in the relationship uh, for as long as I did, cheating on him, generally making everyone who cared about me miserable. I do think I share some of the burden. He was the adult, but I acted like a jerk many times throughout. Darkest thoughts. Right now, because of my work, I'm ashamed that I think that some people are simply worthless and the world would be a better place if they did die from their own stupidity. I'm in the medical profession and over the past year, I've seen so many people who are so far gone and who treat me so poorly and abusively that I have entirely lost empathy and I never thought that could happen. 
darkest secrets. I've told people the worst things I've done, mostly having to do with being unfaithful to partners. I have very little shame. I wonder if there's something I've repressed that I'm not thinking of right now, but I doubt it. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Right now I'm so completely obsessed with a particular fictional couple. I constantly read fan fiction about these particular two male characters and basically find nothing else arousing. But weirdly, I know a bunch of other women who feel the same way and we talk about it. Right now, I can't get enough of male voyeurism. One man secretly observing another man get off. I think it's about taking apart masculinity. I've always been bored or disgusted by hetero porn, although before I was married, I fantasized about hetero stuff plenty. Now it's of no interest to me. Um, you know, if you would, I, I think it's the completely obsessed with the fictional couple is what makes me <clears throat> think that that maybe there's some more uh, healing to be done around uh, the uh, relationship with the uh, the older man or whatever you want to call it, um, and and the uh, being unfaithful uh, to partners. So uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe check out. And I'm not saying that you're you're um, there's anything wrong with your fantasy, but um, the obsession with it. Uh, just a thought. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? I would like to be able to say to anyone uh, what I want to do with the future with certainty. I would like to be able to say to anyone what I want to do with the future with certainty. I see. How can I be this old and still not be sure? I used to think I 100% wanted to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner. Now I feel like being in psych is so grinding and I might be too triggered by my own patients. So what the fuck do I want to do? I don't have kids, so I feel like my career choices are that much more important for making me feel worthwhile as a human. You know, my thought is some type of uh, support community uh, where, you know, like Brian and I talked in the the interview, um, where you're, where there could be some type of spiritual fulfillment that would um, that would help you and would take the pressure off of you finding a profession that fulfills you because I know very few people who are completely fulfilled um, by by anything other than having a, a higher purpose in their life something beyond their own pleasure I hope that doesn't sound preachy. Um, purpose and meaning are the the things that have helped me more than, than anything else. What, if anything, do you wish for? Uh, I wish to meet this one celebrity. I wish I could be his friend. I wish it more than anything in the world, and I think that's weird and unhealthy. I've always been a serial obsessor, but geez, get a grip, me. Have you shared these things with others? I'm kind of an open book, but I think it alienates people. I'm very outgoing, but I don't feel like people really like to hear me talk about the things I want to talk about, so I find I just want to be alone lately. How do you feel after writing these things down? It provides clarity, if not relief, from the obsessiveness and constant thoughts. I actually started obsessing about this 
quote, fandom to get relief from anxiety, and it has worked, and worked is in capital letters. Instead of being obsessed with what's going to kill me today, what if my car gets trapped under that bridge and it falls, I think about hot actors and smile. But then at what point is it a tool, and at what point is it a crutch? I have no idea. I very much relate to what you wrote about, because until I got into a support group for fear of intimacy issues and worked through the stuff that happened in my childhood, especially with my mom. Um, I did everything obsessively. And when I started to process that stuff and started to heal, um, I've, I've been able to have a non-obsessive um, relationship with uh, hobbies, etc., is there any, am I commenting too much on this uh, survey? I feel like I am. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I've lived with clinical depression and anxiety all my life, and I know you can have periods of recovery and periods of remission. I just want to tell people I meet who also have these problems that one day they are very likely going to look up at the sky or hear a song or taste a bite of pizza and think, that's good. I like that. And it's on these small things that the tide can turn. You talk about meditation a lot. It's been a main tool for me, particularly the words and techniques of Pema Chodron. Yeah, I highly recommend her too. She's got a bunch of uh, bunch of books. Check out any of them. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself P. And she writes, today I, and I'm just reading part of it, uh, today I met with a new allergy doctor because I can't just be depressed. I have to be depressed with a constant runny nose and cough. I gave the doctor my list of pills and she told me that I'm too pretty and smart to be depressed and I need to let God into my life as it is the only thing that will fix me. Also, she said I need allergy shots and they will fix my depression because I will have something to do. <laughs> oh my God. I am all for somebody letting a God into their life, but that alone will not cure depression. And wow, wow, this this doctor needs to go back to school. Holy shit. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman teenager who calls herself anorexic addict and about her sex addiction she writes even just the thought of someone else in my bed gives me a high greater than cocaine this was filled out by ivy who writes um and she's gay and she writes about living with an abuser she writes i don't understand why it's not okay to throttle a stranger in a bar but when it's your wife everyone makes excuses for you about being a sex crime victim my mother said, quote, what did you expect? Wow. Wow. I'm so sorry that your mom said that to you. No, no person should ever have to experience that. About her PTSD, she writes, I could live in a soundproofed rubber room and still manage to get freaked out by something. Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey um, filled out by a woman who calls herself newest member of the Texas X Club. She's straight in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused, but she has been physically abused and emotionally abused. Um, uh, both her father and her mother. The mother seemed to... Uh, de the description she gives it is, is very long. Um, 
and uh, so I'm just going to kind of fast forward to tell you, basically sum it up that uh, they were both very abusive people. Um, and she writes uh, about her mom. She remembers nothing about that time. She says she never touched us. Um, she she beat uh, beat the kids. Uh, she can't remember her childlike tantrums, and I believe her. She was not there. She was not the mom who scooped me into her lap sometimes when she knew I needed it most. I can forgive her to some extent, but I can't forget because I am the monster that I am now because of them. Uh, Any positive experiences with the abusers? I absolutely have had positive experiences. These are my parents. There were good times when they were happily married. I remember good times from my childhood. We have good times now when we get together for holidays, probably because everyone is faking one big holiday orgasm of family nonsense. That is such a great phrase. A big holiday or faking a a one big holiday orgasm. I can't can't even imagine how many people fake the holiday orgasm every year. Oh my God. Thank you for that phrase. I am stealing it. Uh, She writes, it absolutely complicates things because I'm supposed to love people that created the mess that I am. I didn't have a shot in hell at a good life. I hate them for taking that from me and I wish I knew why I continue to be on this earth when I hate it here. Darkest thoughts. A few times a day, I have to remind myself that I can't die because no one will be there to feed my dog. I'm really glad I got her in my divorce. Talk about a real lifesaver, literally. And then she writes in parentheses, crap, I need to feed my dog. Um, You have any idea how many people write that same thing that their pet is the only thing that is keeping them alive? Darkest secrets. Off and on, over the last 15 years, I've thrown up after every meal. I can barely eat in public. I'm afraid everyone will question why the fat girl is bothering to eat despite not being fat at all. I cut my arm all through college to try to release the pain. I've attempted to overdose twice, and both times I ended up scraping myself off the bathroom floor hours later because no one noticed I was in there. I am incredibly anxious all the time, but hide it so well that others can't hear the screaming in my head or see my hand shaking. But I'm the perfect woman. I'm told I'm gorgeous, beautiful, stunning, sexy, and smart. Who would have thought? Men look at me and wish their wives were more like me, and so I sleep with them and gloat about their jobless wives at home to make myself feel like I have some worth. But my worth is only as a vessel into which some poor married man spills his seed and then goes home to his happy family. I have a great career that I've carved out for myself despite waiting for the day that they see I'm a fraud, that I'm imperfect, that they should never have hired me. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Wholesome, good, vanilla, normal sex where I actually have an orgasm, where I feel connected to my partner, where I am in love with my partner and he shares the same love for me. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my dad, why didn't you get us out of there? How can you live with yourself knowing that happened to your children on your watch? To my mom's mental illness, how could you hit your children like that when you had the best of kids? To my mom's family, we asked for your help and you did nothing. You knew my mom was sick. Why? To my best and closest friends, help me. What, if anything, to you? do you wish for for it all to end after my dog dies i can go too 
Well, first of all, I want to send you a hug, and you are not a monster. You sound to me like a normal person who is dealing with overwhelming emotional feelings. Um, and I'm so touched by what you want to say to your best and closest friends. Help me. Why not? Why not do that? Why not do that? Well, I know because it's it's scary and you're afraid of being maybe rejected by them or looking a certain way, but you deserve to live. You deserve to live. You deserve to want to live. And um, it just breaks my heart how much you are alone in your in your pain. And um, just sending you a hug and hoping that you you ask for help, that uh, you talk to a therapist or join a support group or have coffee with a friend and, and let somebody know what's really going on. And again, you are not a monster. Um, this is filled out. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Cameo. And about his anxiety, he writes, If you compliment me, it sends my brain into overdrive, compiling an exhaustive, exhaustive list of reasons why you're wrong. Oh my God, does my brain do that. Oh, my Lord. Wow, that is a great one. Snapshot from his life, standing in line at the grocery store and starting to panic, wanting to abandon my cart and flee to my car, but there's no food at home. Oh, buddy. Oh. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Fish Tank Muck. And he writes, my mother, late 60s, a retired high school teacher, is a technological imbecile, narcissistic, and has weird tendencies to talk about sex all the time. Because I'm a mid-40s codependent man who has mommy issues, I let mom have a phone on my and my wife's cell phone plan. Mom gets off quite cheap, and she has me to constantly show her how to use her iPhone 6 Plus, even though she really needs some sort of moron-proof jitterbug. Uh, so she called me last week complaining how she couldn't get on Facebook, etc., and could I fix it? I drove over to her, her condo and suffered through her mentioning, for some reason, that when she wore an IUD back in the 1970s, my deceased daddy could feel the string thing when they were having sex because he was so huge down there. Hmm, I said. Okay, give me your phone. She gave it to me and I fixed her phone in less than 10 seconds. While I was at it, I closed all of her open apps. I gave her back her phone, and Mom says, Well, that wasn't so bad, was it? I figured I broke it or something. I looked at her and said, Your Wi-Fi was just screwed up. I fixed it. By the way, I closed your movie that you've been watching, uh, the wonderful actor Mandingo, in his critically acclaimed virtuoso performance in Black Monster Fucking Tiny Nymphos. <laughs> Wow. Wow. I hope I hope you've gone and talked to somebody about um your relationship with your mom because um A, it sounds like she has no boundaries and is incestuous with you, even if she's not touching your junk. Talking like that to your child is fucking incest. And it sounds like you're really angry. Um, 
which I think anybody would be if their parent was talking like that. And you deserve better. And that's a fucking funny story. So thank you, thank you, and thank you. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by um, a woman who calls herself everything means nothing to me. About her depression, she writes, I feel selfish. I have no right or reason to feel sad all the fucking time. Yet all I ever want to do is lay in bed feeling sorry for myself. Oh my God, do I relate to that? About her anorexia, I don't fucking care if you're hungry. You're a fat piece of shit and don't deserve food. Starve. It's the only thing you're good at anyway. And then a snapshot from her life, she writes, It's the end of the school day, and I stop by the store on the way home. Ice cream, pound cake, muffins, I get it all. I'm anxious and excited. Finally, I take it all to my room, put the heater on, and get the fuck on with it. I stuff, stuff my face until my stomach is about to rip open. Pure bliss. My emotions are non-existent. I then walk the five paces to my bathroom. I get rid of all of it. It's so easy. I wonder why everyone doesn't do this. Um, I walk back, sit down, sit down in a pile of wrappers and plates. Is that? It is. A whole other pack of muffins. So again, it is. And again, and again, and again. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I can't imagine. I can't imagine how how difficult an eating disorder must be. You know, any of the you know so-called process addictions, where it's something like shoplifting or um, uh, sex addiction, um, you know, as opposed to a physical substance. Um, although I, I guess uh, eating disorders, I consider. Oh, I don't know. God, I want to re- just erase this whole fucking thing <sighs> doesn't have to be perfect there is no perfect it's an unreachable ideal you're doing your best you're supported people like you and Herbert has a beautiful butthole For those of you that are listening for the first time, Herbert is my dog. Like that makes it any better. Oh, oh, for a second I thought he was weird. He's talking about his dog's butthole. All right. Well, now that I know that. I thought he was talking about some guy named Herbert. Right now there's a guy named Herbert listening, going, so I don't have a beautiful butthole? Click off. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who uh, calls himself Dan. He's straight. He's in his 30s. No, his 20s. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. He was sexually abused and never reported it. He, <clears throat> he writes, I was repeated, repeatedly sexually abused by my brother in my childhood. I tried telling my mom about it, but she started crying and was in denial. Years later, when I was in my 20s, when I brought it up again, she said she never knew. I went to therapy for it, uh, where my therapist had me write a letter to the child I was in that situation and what I would say to console myself. It helped a bit, but it's still frustrating thinking about all the ways it has screwed me up. I know it is likely the root of my alcoholism, though I am coming up on four years sober. I know it may have affected my impulses and self-control or lack thereof in my relationships. 
He's also been physically and emotionally abused. He writes, I had a verbally and sometimes physically abusive father. His father was verbally and physically abusive to him, and he passed that on to me. He never supported any of my interests and always discouraged me from doing anything I was interested in. Though we went to therapy and became less abusive in later years, he still does not understand my interests. I don't think... Uh, this is that uncommon for parents, but the years of emotional abuse have made our relationship pretty damaged. Any positive experiences with them? Yes, I've been friends with my brother my whole life, but we are both alcoholics. He is still using, but I no longer am. Darkest thoughts. Sometimes I wish certain people's spouses would die so I could be with them. Darkest secrets. I take an herbal supplement for depression that I feel guilty about since when I lived with my parents, they told me medication was bad, even though it was really helping me. Now I cannot afford the treatment I was getting when I lived with them. Um, Fuck your parents uh, telling you that medication is bad. Wow. Oh, you know what I would ask them? Say, oh, I'm sorry. Where did you get your medical degree? Remind me again. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't really have any sexual fantasy I've experienced already, but uh, I don't really have any sexual fantasy uh, I've experienced already, but could always use more of them. What I really fantasize about is true love. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm hurting inside. I can't explain it all and don't want to scare people away since there are so few people in my life already. I don't really have any emotional support in my life right now. Well, if you're getting sober um, and you're not in a support group for sobriety, um, that might be a really great place to get some emotional uh, support. What, if anything, do you wish for? Uh, A lover, a friend, and deep inner peace. Have you shared these things with others? I am open about anxiety and depression, but don't go into details with most people. I don't want to be a burden to people, and I feel like people will see me as inferior for it. To which I say, bullshit, bullshit, and bullshit. You would not be a burden to people. You would be giving people a chance to be of service to you, to be there emotionally for you, and they, in turn, would feel a sense of meaning and purpose from doing it, so you would actually be helping them. Um, you know, the person who is a burden to people are, are people that, um, where it's just a one way street and there's not a conversation and it's just the same thing day after day after day after day and you're draining them, but you got to go a long way to become that draining, uh, to, to people, uh, to good people that are capable of speaking, um, you know, in an emotional language. So, um, yeah, that, that, those are all lies that your head is telling you to keep you alone and separate and miserable and you deserve better. How do you feel after writing these things down? It's good to write it out, but I don't feel great about it or anything. I'm filling this out at work and a bit nervous, hoping that I don't get caught. Maybe not the best idea, but it'll work out. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are not alone in your loneliness, and I am not alone in my loneliness. All things change. It's beautiful. Amen. Sending you some love, Dan. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Buddhist by the beach. And about his depression, he writes, feeling lonely even in the company of many. Oh, have I been there? About his anxiety, feeling nervous even in the company of none. Um... 
snapshot from his life, a pendulum swinging from feeling depressed because no one cares about me to feeling anxious because everybody does. That is a good one. Thank you for that. This is filled out by Krista, who is a uh, trans female, and um, a snapshot from her life. She writes, I need to go two blocks to pick up batteries, and I'm terrified to. I take the train into the city, and I have to escape into a bathroom stall just to be alone and gather my wits. But going into the room and into or out of the stall is walking a gauntlet of judgment and fear for those who would police my gender. I can't imagine how hard that has got to be. I can't imagine. This, I love this name. This is filled up by a woman who calls herself anti-social worker. Oh, I love the game, the names you guys come up with. About her bulimia, she writes, Everything, my happiness, sadness, hopefulness, fears, successes, failures, all exist in the several square feet of my bathroom. The toilet becomes my altar, my confession booth, and if left unchecked, my grave. That is one of the most profound things I've read since starting the podcast. Wow. Wow. About her anorexia, hunger pains hurt, but not as much as dealing with my feelings would. Uh, Snapshot from her life, coming home one night to a particularly putrid scent and opening the closet door to discover that the tens of freezer bags full of vomit I had stored up had finally burst, spilling the contents of my stomach all over everything in the closet. There were even maggots. I knew I had truly lost my mind when my first reaction to this was to laugh instead of cry. Wow. That is heavy. That is heavy. Thank you for that. I can't imagine what it would be like if I had tried to do this show on a radio station. Could you imagine how many things they would edit or censor or words they would want to change? Oh my God. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself um, Snowy Owl. And she is in her 20s, um, primarily attracted to women, but also more feminine people of other genders. Raised in a stable and safe environment, uh, although she writes, uh, parents divorced when I was a teenager. Uh, let's see. Have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Um, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And also, no, I have never been sexually abused. Uh, the unusual things that happened to lots of women. In ninth grade, a group of men drove slowly around the block again and again in order to follow me on my way home from school, yelling sexual comments and threats at me. When I, was a fifth, when I was 15, a 30-year-old guy on the bus tried to convince me to sleep with him. Also, when I was about 10, I had a sleepover with a girl my same age from my soccer team. I think she must have experienced sexual abuse herself because she was very sexually knowledgeable for that age and very aggressive about trying to get me to role-play sexual acts with her. 
She completely ignored my obvious cues that I wasn't interested or comfortable, and when I finally tried to run away from her, she followed me and grabbed at me, continuing to suggest sexual acts we could try until I had to make up an excuse to get inside and away from her. I told my mom what happened, but she didn't really understand how freaked out I was, so she kept an eye on the girl but didn't make her go home. That night, the girl came into my room and asked if she could sleep in my bed. Of course, I refused. My parents were actually pretty good at teaching me how to how to set boundaries, but I was terrified and stayed awake until I was sure she was asleep. If I was less confident in my own gut feelings, it could have turned out so much worse. But still, the incident really stuck with me. At that age, I had no sexual awareness at all. So in my first experience of being sexually desired or pursued, all I felt was fear and confusion, especially because this was someone I had thought of as a friend. The only reason I don't label it sexual abuse is because I truly believe she was too young to really understand her actions or be responsible for them. I was so traumatized in the weeks after after uh, that incident that my parents took me to get EMDR therapy. It helped so much. Um, I kept my memories, but the fear had bled out of them so I could think about what happened without panicking. The first time I told a friend about that in high school, she laughed in my face for making such a big deal about nothing. She's grown a lot since then and apologized, but the tendency to minimize has stuck with me for a long time. Um... She's never been physically or emotionally abused and writes, I am so, so lucky. Darkest thoughts. I am paranoid about being sexually assaulted. I hate the idea of vaginal sex in general. Uh, I've had gender dysphoria since puberty. I can't even use tampons. And the idea that there are people out there who could and would force me that experience, force that experience on me against my will is horrifying. I have intrusive thoughts about it all the time. It's usually the classic strange man in a dark alley trope. My subconscious seems to know that it's not realistic for me to win a fight even in a fantasy, so usually I suffer a brutal assault and then the perps are caught and the way I quote win is to be merciful. I tell my imaginary lawyer that I just want people to be safe and for my rapist to be rehabilitated, so don't ask for the for the maximum prison sentence. I tell my family and friends not to seek revenge. It's not genuine compassion because it's all self-indulgent fantasy, a way for me to feel like I have control. I don't have physical power, so I have to have the moral upper hand. Wow, you are an incredibly insightful uh, person. Um, Darkest secrets. I don't have a lot of secrets. I've been in therapy for many years. have good friends, even if most of them are on the internet. The one thing I can think of that I'm actively hiding is this one time in my freshman year of college when I wrote graffiti that was violent and threatening, and I never told anyone in my dorm that it was me because, one, it freaked everyone out so much, and two, it was so embarrassing to me that I hadn't realized that what I wrote would sound that bad when it was anonymous. I was just teasing. I felt awful. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. For as long as I can remember, in my sexual fantasies, I've had a male body. I'm usually having sex with a female. Everything else varies, but that doesn't. It's emotionally very frustrating and sad that I can't have that in real life. I've cried during and after sex several times. A lot of my sexual fantasies are about using my partner for my own sexual needs without regard for their feelings about it. 
I think it comes from that feeling that my sexual needs are in fact constantly going unmet. And it's probably the flip side of my rape paranoia. Fantasizing about rape is a way of taking back control. I'm not as ashamed about it as I used to be and I'd like to thank my ex-girlfriend for finding those fantasies so sexy and for having such fun and compassionate sex with me. What if anything do you wish for? For my insurance to cover top surgery. Failing that for several thousand dollars Failing that uh, for several thousand dollars to fall into my lap. I've been wishing for this for so long that it still hasn't happened yet, so I'm trying to make it happen myself. And you know what? I want to apologize. Um, yeah, under gender, she wrote, she wrote um, other, and it's complicated. So actually, I should have been uh, referring to you as they all along. Um, so I, I apologize to you. I um, Anyway, continuing. Um... They write, what if anything you wish for, for my insurance to cover, oh, we did that one. Have you shared these things with others? Uh, yes, and it was mostly good. I've had a lot of practice talking to therapists, and I've slowly gotten better at opening up. Uh, when talking about gender dysphoria, in particular, I feel so much shame that sometimes I have to write things down and hand them to my therapist while I cover my eyes so I don't see her read it. Oh, that is heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking. I'm so sorry. That you feel so much shame. <sighs> How do you feel after writing these things down? Hopeful that you'll find them interesting enough to share. Glad that I'm finally getting better at expressing my feelings. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? To young people questioning their genders, kiddo, you're not alone. There are so many of us who care about you so, so fiercely, who stay up at night worrying about all the shit young trans and gender non-conforming kids are going through all over this country every day, who would drop everything and help if a young person in our lives told us they were struggling. I know it's terrifying and hard, and I can't fix that, but we're here, and we can't wait to meet you, the real you, whoever that might be. Oh, man, is that beautiful. That is so beautiful. That is so, so beautiful. And you know, another reason why I wanted to read this is because even though these the people, some of the people in your life made mistakes, they apologized, and there were good things that they did. You know, your parents encouraged you to, to have boundaries and... Um, and they took you to, for EMDR. Um, it's just, it's so nice when when I read in the in the survey about somebody stepping up and doing the right thing. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself hopelessly bromantic. Fucking great name. He writes in my mid twenties. With female companionship a distant memory, I had moved into a quaint two-bedroom house with my best friend, a hugely popular restaurant worker with the ladies. The house we shared had only one bathroom. Soon after moving in together, we began dating a lovely young lady that quickly became his live-in girlfriend. As self-elected maid of the household, I would routinely clean, dust, vacuum, wash dishes, and compile the trash weekly. 
One day, while collecting trash, I noticed the bathroom trash collection was primarily made up of small wads of toilet tissue, which I found a little disconcerting because they could have easily been flushed rather than accumulated. Never before noticing this unusual habit seemingly forming right before my eyes, I chalked it up to his new girlfriend's lady habits. Before long, in an attempt to re-familiarize myself with the, quote, scent of a woman, I used one of the wads of tissue as an aphrodisiac to masturbate. The following morning, while my housemate was showering, I routinely entered the bathroom to shave. We shared a quick conversation about our plans for the day, and soon as I was finishing my shave, he nonchalantly exited the shower, reached for some toilet tissue, and began to dry his hairy ass with a wad of paper. Before I could scream no in my head, he discarded the tissue in the trash. Dry heaves, laughing, and a short cry soon followed my first realization of how depression manifests a lonely heart. Fantastic. That should have come with with sleigh bells. That was such a Christmas present. Um, this is a happy moment from my friend Jimmy Doyle, who uh, was a guest on the show. And he writes, uh, My happiest memories in my life are of my wedding day, seeing all of my friends and family together and celebrating the pr- practically miraculous event of me being able to marry my husband after years of struggling for marriage equality. Beautiful. And uh, I love going to dinner with them. Carla and I go out with uh, Jimmy and Steven about once a month. And uh, yeah, it's um, sometimes I, I just think we have a long way to go, but sometimes it's amazing how far, how far we've, we've come. Um, anyway, finally, this is a happy moment from a uh, woman who calls herself a waste of cells. And she writes, this past week, I wandered into my mom's room and saw her sitting on her bed, talking on the phone. I just wanted to feel connected, so I curled up next to her on the bed. To my surprise, she started to rub my back, the way you would in order to soothe a small child. It was so incredibly comforting that I wanted to cry. I could not remember the last time I felt that comforted, or really comforted at all, because it had to be before middle school. At some point in my life, I decided that because of events in my childhood and because of what people in my life had taught me about adulthood, I no longer deserved any love or care or protection. After all, only kids deserve care and protection, not adults. And the things I did as a kid were so vile and evil that I ruined all chances of being lovable or worthwhile. By the way... She shared in another survey the things that she did in a ki- as a kid, and they were so not what she categorizes them as. Um, continuing, this one gesture, though, it made me feel so happy, even if it was just for five minutes. She didn't know, but I was on the verge of tears in that moment. I wanted to stay curled up with her like that for the whole day. Most days I feel ready to walk in front of an oncoming truck, but that moment gave me a glimmer of hope that I will try to hold on to until I can get some peace. That is a beautifully bittersweet moment. Uh, thank you for, for sharing that. And, and my hope is that you can find some support in your life so you can get some 
some feedback and uh, start to turn the volume down on that mean voice in your brain. Because man, do I know what it's like to live with that. And it is tiring. And it really saps us of, uh, of energy. But I get it. I get it. And um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I hope if you're out there uh, and you're struggling that uh, this last two and a half hours has um, made you feel less alone. Maybe giving you some clarity, maybe helped a light bulb go off in your head, maybe entertained you. Um, I hope you got something out of it. And um, to anybody who's feeling really, really stuck, um, there's nothing wrong with asking for help. There's nothing wrong. It's the best decision I ever made. And I wish that. I wish that for you. To have that day when you just say, enough is enough. Today is the day I pick up the phone. Um, and uh, never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.